This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her? And you're obsessed with her daughter! Right, easy, Geraldo. So what do you call two British men desperately looking for the donkey that escaped their barn? Oh shit, um... And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking 360 degree pans, we're talking trauma porn, and we're talking shitty, shitty boys. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking the best horror film of the last decade? Question mark? I don't know, Ooh, but people think so. And she's coming in strong. I might too. <laughs> we're talking It Follows, everybody. And I guess this is a long time coming, Joe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, folks, you may remember that we did a listener poll back in the first year of the podcast, and this was the most requested film that people wanted to hear us cover. So, uh... You're welcome two years later. <laughs> I remember, well, because we had it on the schedule last year, and then we bumped it. Like, something happened, release date shifted. We were like, oh, fuck, right. we gotta move something, and that's what happened. And then we were like, oh, wait, mm-hmm. that's the reader survey request. <laughs> Shit. But you know what? It's okay, because this movie just follows you around. It'll come back later. Uh, just a little bit. But, Joe, and listeners, we, of course, can't do this on our own. I mean, we can, but, like, we don't want to. So, (laughs) we do have a guest on today's episode. And, everyone, you know him from our previous episodes on The X-Files, I Want to Believe, and I Know What You Did Last Summer. Please welcome uh, my husband, Ari Drew. Hello. I'm back, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. I'm not gonna lie, every time you come back, I'm filled with slight trepidation, because it means one of the two of you may be drunk, and or we're gonna get into some heavy-ass shit. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually really funny, because the first time I was drunk, the second time he was tipsy, this time, we are both stone-cold sober. (laughs) And I will say to you, I actually am, like, getting over illness, so I probably sound really congested and gross right now, so I'm very far from drunk, I'm like... (laughs) Pulling for energy, but this is luckily a movie that matches how I feel. I will say, introducing you, I wanted to be like uh, Kirstie Alley in Drop Dead Gorgeous when she's like, "Uh, it's it's my daughter, Rebecca Ann Lennon! (laughs) (laughs) It's my husband, Ari Drew! 
I would have loved that. <laughs> well, we just did it for you. Come on. Thanks. Just edit that to where that's the actual introduction. And Got I'm... it. Okay. Yep. Yep. We can accommodate that. So, okay, Ari, uh, husband of mine. So... <laughs> You obviously, every year we're going to do the thing where we're like, hey, here's our calendar for the year. Pick a movie you want to come on. And you picked this very specifically. Actually, I think I picked something else first. Yes. That was more fun. Mm, uh, you did pick Sorority Row did, first. Yeah. But right. but you've had, you've had um, I mean, spoiler for the future, I guess, but you've had a Suspiria remake on your eye for a while. Forever, yeah. Mm. Um, so this one, yeah, this is, I was really excited when I saw that no one had taken this. And honestly, had someone had taken this. I probably would have, like, thrown a fit <laughs> until I could have it. Sure, kind of bitch, yeah. I think the reason why I was so passionate about it this last cycle was because this has actually been one of my uh, top pandemic comfort movies, oddly enough. Oh. And we can go into that more, but, yeah. <laughs> I, we, we've had this on the schedule, you know? Like, oh, it's coming out in September, whatever. And, like, back in March, he was like, do you want to watch It Follows? And I was like, well, we're going to watch it in, like, a couple months. And he's like, yeah, but we can just watch it again. And I was like, I don't want <laughs> I don't really feel like doing that, to be honest. <laughs> I feel like, though, that is going to relate very strongly to certain people. Like, I know so many people who say, you know, what's your comfort horror? And they're like, oh, I just want something either really terrible or really graphic and disturbing. And when you say that kind of thing to people who don't watch horror films, they don't get it at all. But I, <laughs> I think there's a large portion of horror fans who, when they hear something like that, they go, oh, yeah, I can understand why. As far as what? I'm sorry, I understand why people would pick something like this or something like graphic or mindless. Both. I think there's something that's attractive about horror and like watching people go through something terrible. Like a uh, mm -hmm. former guest on our Bones episode, Carolyn Morissette, one of her favorite comfort horror films is Martyrs. Mm, oh, yeah. yeah I can yeah. see that. Like that does not connect with me where I'm like, oh no, I need to be in the right headspace. Oh, I, I need know to this be person, in but I feel like we would vibe. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> so she was great on our Bones episode, and everyone should go listen to that and watch that movie because it is an underrated gem. It is, yeah. I do think though, I mean, you know, if you say, you know, something really upsetting, something really depressing, I think there's like at least in Martyrs specifically, there's a catharsis there. Like there is right. a release, even if it's not necessarily the happiest mm -hmm. release. Right. And I feel like and again i might be, i might generalize with people here but with it follows specifically like there isn't really like a release it doesn't have that yes and, and yeah. i think that when you say oh it's really disturbing it's really upsetting it's really scary especially for quote-unquote horror fans like or like normal horror fans like you know they <laughs> if, you, if you say that they're gonna watch this and be like oh that isn't really that um and i think we'll have a lot more to say on that matter when we talk about the reception of this film because i do think sometimes the critical and audience divide on this is pretty stark yeah yeah this is not every horror fan's favorite film and i think there's even some people who would say oh well this is barely a horror film and i think we have oh. a lot to say about that <laughs> Yeah, that, 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 I mean, I'm not going to say anything mean, but that's not correct. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to flat out say, you are wrong. Sorry. <laughs> okay, well, let's get some basic stuff out of the way before we kind of talk into, uh, talk about how we view the film. So, of course, this is uh, written and directed by David Robert Mitchell. It's his second film. His first film being 2010's The Myth of the American Sleepover, which I have not seen. Have either one of y'all seen this? No, not at all. I have not, but it's also not a genre film. No, it is not. Um, although neither is his film after this. Which is it widely available? It is. Oh, yeah, you can rent it on Amazon Prime. It's. Uh, it is streaming for free, quote unquote, if you subscribe to AMC Plus. 
Okay. Hmm. So I've heard it's actually really good. I just haven't seen it. But yeah, this is actually, uh, in the three films he has done, this is the only genre film, because this film after this is a neo-noir. Right. Your favorite. <sighs> I really don't like that movie, but it's my aversion to neo-noir. I know it has its fans. It's just, it is very long, and it feels endless. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll see if we can change your mind in a future episode. How's that? I, oh my god. <laughs> sure. Joe, are you a fan of, of Silver Lake? I've actually never seen it, but I do quite enjoy neo-noirs. I think I do too, actually. I, I thought I didn't, and maybe it was because I'm married to Trace and he, like, really hates them, but yeah. there have been a few things that he's been like, this is a terrible movie, and I watch it, and I'm like, oh, I know why he doesn't like that. So, yeah. uh-huh. I, I think the biggest example, and this is something that listeners might not know, but it's a movie called Gemini that came out a couple years ago. That's the big one. I skipped it. At a, I, I wholly skipped it at a festival where it was screening because he said it was so bad. And another friend of ours agreed. Jenny. 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 A, past, a past guest. Oh. <laughs> and, um, and I was like... Asterix on Jenny. No, if we love her, but... Her. <laughs> right. I'm like, well, I guess I'm not going to watch it. And then I saw it on a plane, and I fucking loved it. I thought it was wonderful, and I think it should be covered on this podcast, and that's why. Uh, it 100% could apply for coverage. You know what? What it has going for it against Under the Silver Lake is that it's short. <laughs> Under right. the Silver Lake is two and a half hours long. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so bringing it back to Mr. Mitchell. <laughs> this first tangent is brought to you by Ari Drew. <laughs> Sorry. Are we going to keep tabs? Oh, uh, yeah. No, 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 that's it. I'm done. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, Mitchell conceived It Follows based on a recurring dream he had in his youth about being followed. In his words, uh, he says, from what I understand, it's an anxiety dream, which would make a lot of sense. And I think when we start to dabble in like to uh, readings and interpretations of this film and what it represents, that's really going to play a part here. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until later that the role of sexual transmission came into play because he basically was like, okay, I want something where something's going to follow someone, but I want a way for it to transmit between people. And sex was like the... I guess the first thing that came to his mind. (laughs) Sure. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So he started writing this in 2011 while working on a separate film he intended to be his second feature film. And I'm going to assume that was Under the Silver Lake. Probably. Probably a safe bet. Yeah. Maybe so. I wonder if he was like, no, Under the Silver Lake isn't really as commercially marketable. Hmm. So anyway, he struggled getting that film made. And again, I think it is because of just the general thing with it um and made it follows his next film instead so he's given a production budget of 1.3 million dollars and shoots it in detroit michigan in late 2013 just some fun technical stuff for everyone he did use a wide angle lens when filming for pretty much everything to give the film an expansive look but i also think that when we're talking about the anxiety and the scares in this film it is so that we can see as much of like the mise-en-scene as possible so we can track all the extras Yes, and I have a reading that explicitly addresses that. Yay! Um, He cites the works of George Romero and John Carpenter as influences on the film's compositions and visual aesthetic. The film's monster, shot composition, and overall aesthetic were actually influenced by the work of contemporary photographer Gregory Crudson, and I had to look this guy up. Mm Mm-hmm. He's a man who photographs tableaus of American homes and neighborhoods, which, (laughs) when you watch the film, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and the artistry in that photography is actually quite stark, but intimate, and it has a weird period aesthetic, so it's very much in keeping with this film. Like the timeless aspect, where it's like, we don't know when this movie takes place. Yeah, and that's something that people really find fascinating about this particular film. I think we'll all agree with that. 
And actually, this photographer Crudson's influences. Um, I mean, he he actually cites films specifically, which are Vertigo, Night of the Hunter, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Blue Velvet, and Safe. Oh, that is a great list of films. P.S. Yeah, and actually, Mitchell had his DP Mike Giolakis uh, peruse Crudson's lookbook from day one, since his work had the same kind of surreal suburban imagery that they wanted for It Follows, and. Mm. Clearly that impressed some bigwigs in Hollywood because this DP went on to, well, he's actually Shyamalan captured him because <laughs> he shot, he shot Split, Glass, and Old, but he also shot Us and a lot of episodes of Servant, our favorite TV show, Joe. Yes. And the upcoming Tammy Faye Baker biopic with Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield, who's also in Under the Silver Lake. Uh, interesting. Yeah, that's going to play at TIFF in like a week. So it'll be interesting to see. I will say his work with Shyamalan is really evident, particularly the way that they both move the camera in this and old. And folks, if you want to hear our thoughts on old, of course, we covered it on the <laughs> Patreon last month. <laughs> you know what? I didn't even think about that. But you are correct, because I really enjoy this film's usage of 360 degree camera turns. And if you listen to our Patreon episode, I didn't fully love it in that film. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, uh, you know, not much else. We've just got the music up, which music here, which of course is a big point for everybody. The score was composed by Rich Vreeland, better known as Disaster Piece. This will mean nothing to you two, but the reason Mitchell <laughs> sought him out <laughs> was because he was a huge fan of the 2012 indie puzzle platform video game Fez, uh, which Disaster Piece did the music for. Um, although I do think that the score, and again, we'll talk about this later, adds to the surrealist feel of the film interesting yeah i feel like this and the guest were among the first films where i really noticed like oh synth is making a big comeback in horror films now do you think that was tied to like 80s nostalgia because i mean stranger things i think was a couple years after this but i feel like it's all tied together right yeah i think so i think so yeah i mean we've been in love with the 80s for so long at this point it's almost like i can't remember a time when we didn't obsess about it but <laughs> also if you're thinking about this film's nods to john carpenter that also makes sense yeah yeah it follows premieres at the 2014 Cannes film festival which i mean that seems that is seven years ago it is shocking to me <laughs> <laughs> i don't like it when we do those kinds of references uh this is may 17th 2014 uh, of course it gets rave reviews um it is given a limited theatrical release uh for theaters in the united states on march 13th <laughs> the following year but there is when it earns over $160,000 for an average of $40,863 per theater making Jesus. it the best limited opening for a film released in the u.s and canada in 2015 wow Yes. Um, and actually, um, following the positive first weekend reception from critics and audiences like that week, the film's originally planned VOD slash theatrical release was canceled in favor of theatrical only. So this was going to open, I think, again, wider, you know, two weeks later, which it did, but with a VOD release. And they were like, fuck that shit. Let's take it <laughs> off and just do theaters. Let's make some money. <laughs> so yeah, March 27th, 2015, which I'm going to call it the official release date because I know when we get into festival releases and limited releases, like, I mean, fourth years, mm -hmm. like, no one's going to see that movie, right? I mean, I'm sorry, <laughs> people did see the movie <laughs> just in those four theaters. Yes, in New York and Los Angeles. Yeah, so it gets 1,200 theaters on March 27th, 2015, and it gets a domestic gross of $14.7 million with an international gross of $8.6 for a worldwide total of $23.3 million. Such small potatoes, but then you think of the gargantuan footprint that this film has left on the horror genre in the last decade. 
it's just kind of funny when the money doesn't correspond with the film's cultural impact for me. Yes. And let's talk about this reception for a bit, because I, I, I just... I... <laughs> I really want to talk about this. So, again, it gets critical acclaim, uh, both at its festival premiere and its theatrical premiere. We're looking at a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 8.1 out of 10, uh, based on 261 reviews. It was also ranked as the sixth most praised film of the year on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, this is one of our, like, best-reviewed films, I think, that we've covered. I mean, I think it, you know, we always talk about older films, you know, we can't really, like compare like the aggregate site scores but like i want to say one of our best reviewed films was like oh rebecca frank uh bride of frankenstein or right yeah you know, those kind of films but yeah i mean i think that the much how the, those films were viewed as classics and like you know setting precedents for horror of their time i also think that this film can proudly stake that claim mm-hmm uh, we're looking at a slightly lower average on Letterboxd with 7.2 out of 10. But I mean, just to a couple of the, the lauds listed of this film. We've got the best horror film in years, the best horror film in over a decade, a classical horror masterpiece, a creepy, mesmerizing exercise in minimalist horror. Hmm. I mean, this film was hyped for almost an entire year. I mean, do y'all remember this happening? Like, I remember this premiere at Cannes, and I remember the, the, the reviews coming out. You just had that image of Micah Monroe in her little, like, in her bra, in the, in the wheelchair, paired with all these reviews calling it the scariest film you'll see all year. And yeah, for Aaron, us, <laughs> this is where the problems begin. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, I mean, what were y'all's viewing, like, your viewing experience? For, I mean, I saw it with Ari, of course, but <laughs> when y'all saw this in theaters, what what did y'all think when you walked out of this movie? I think the the hype got me a bit. Okay. I remember really liking the first half quite a bit. And then I remember thinking, like, this is a bit repetitive for me. And then I remember, mm. you know, feeling a certain way about the scene towards the end at the pool. Yeah. Because I thought that that was very tonally different than the rest of the film. Mm. So I remember walking out of that and telling Trace, like, I didn't love that the way I expected to. Like, I was like, I can appreciate what it's done. Like, you know, what the director's done. I can appreciate the style but something about it just didn't click with me. Just didn't quite connect. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really strange considering how I regard it now. But well, yeah. so Joe, what about you? And then, cause I think, well, at least for us, like our opinions have gotten better <laughs> over right. the past couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> I had a slightly similar, but maybe a little bit more positive experience than mm-hmm. what Ari just mentioned. So I was very aware of the hype. So it was very much on my radar. I had been looking forward to the film. Particularly, I remember seeing those numbers out of the four theaters and people talking about, holy shit, these numbers are massive. This film is getting such great reviews. So I remember I went to see it, I think on the Friday night that it opened wide in those 1200 theaters. And people were very split. There was definitely people who came out and, and as I said off the top, didn't even consider it a horror film. They didn't find it quote unquote scary and therefore it wasn't very good to them. I was a little bit more like Ari where I thought the back half of the film didn't work quite as well and I had difficulty putting my finger on it until I started reading people praising the fact that the pool thing was intentional like it was a stupid decision by the kids that doesn't make sense because it's not meant to make sense Mm -hmm. and that started to change the film in my opinion and then over time i've really come to appreciate it yeah i think i think that's exactly that was my sentiment and i even walking out i remember 
being positive about it, but it was really just like, that was not what I was expecting mm-hmm. based on everything, which is funny because I, during the pandemic, I've watched this movie a number of times. And one time I showed it to my mom. And when I go home and visit my parents, I show my mom a ton of horror trailers for films mm-hmm. that I feel like she probably hasn't seen. And this one, I showed it to her and she was really, she's like, oh, we should watch that one. That looks really exciting and scary. And I was like, you know, I really love this trailer. I don't think it necessarily misrepresents the film. Right. But I'm just like, I had to prime her and kind of say like, this is not going to be quite what you think. It's it's a little bit slower, but it is really, mm-hmm. really creepy. Yes. And that I think is the perfect adjective for this. It It's creepy. It's dread inducing. It's like slow and methodical. And I think... Trace, you and I have talked about this on our best jump scares minisode mm. on Patreon, but there's an issue when horror fans associate jump scares with horror. And this is not a good film if that's the kind of horror that you subscribe to. I mean, using air quotes. No, I mean, I, I don't even want to. I, I, we both, you and I, say jump scares a lot. I even wanted to just like maybe even say conventional scares. Mm-hmm. I think there are moments in this movie that are scary. Uh, but as a whole, the entire film, I mean, like, going back to Mitchell's earliest quote about, oh, like, I, this was based on an, anxi- on an anxiety dream. Every time I watch this movie, like, in the, you know, five or six years since this movie came out, I've seen it probably four or five times. I liked it a little bit more each time, and I noticed things more each time. But mm-hmm. I also, like, noticed my anxiety building more and more each time, because yeah. the way the film is structured, you know, you are... A, once you get, you know, the explanation of the rules, you know, in this wheelchair scene that we'll talk about later, it's like, okay, from then on, your final girl, as it were, is constantly, constantly in danger. And you never know when this thing is coming after. And this film rewards repeat viewings because even though you know, okay, well, in this scene, it's not going to get her, you can still play a little bit of Where's Waldo in every single shot mm-hmm. <laughs> where you're just looking for it, the titular it. Yes. And I love that. Yeah. There's something to be said for how expertly crafted this film is. And I think that's one of the divides between critics and audiences where the critics look at how well shot it is, how well scripted it is, the use of music to craft and generate that feeling of anxious dread. And then I think if you're not in that frame of mind, when you go into this, you're just like, it's just repetitive. It's just this girl being followed by a slow lumbering creature. And you have to wrap your head around the idea that this film is so methodical and so just expertly well made that that's where a lot of the tension is generated from. Literally just watching her in the center of the frame, scanning the edges constantly, waiting for something to just slowly appear. That is fucking anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's so much. <laughs> yeah, I'd say I'd say too, like even just so your comment about the technical aspects of the film and like that that just the way it was made and the way it's shot and the music and everything, how it comes together. I think that is a big part of it that the more it's like, it's like hereditary for me, which is Mm -hmm. a movie that the more Mm -hmm. I watch it, the more I love it because it's so meticulous and how it's crafted. And there are new things to notice every time, even if it's just like, wow, I didn't notice how beautiful that framing was of that shot. And Mm -hmm. I even thought that I, in this rewatch this week, I was looking at it and I was like, Oh, this is so fucking good. Yeah. Why is it that people don't like this? And then I was like, okay, because I'm just like getting a boner over this shot of like the pool <laughs> the pool filling with blood. Because it's yeah. beautiful. Oh. You know, it's uh, like, okay, who would get excited about that unless you really like 
films. The, the shot that I, the, again, it's a long shot, so I don't know why I never appreciated it before, but it's when they're under the water in the pool and it is grabbing her and the bullets are flying, mm-hmm. but it's just this like long wide shot of the two. It's so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's like you could frame almost the entire film. You could cut the cells, put them up on the wall. It's a piece of art, which I think is a testament also to the photographer that Mitchell mm-hmm. was inspired by, right? Like if you think about him trying to replicate that sort of imagery, every single image becomes its own kind of static tableau. Yeah. And when it comes to reception, I mean, I, so it's a combination of things for me, you know, where it's like, okay, this isn't your quote-unquote typical like mainstream horror release there was a lack of closure the climax isn't particularly climactic but that's also a combination of again critics coming out of these festivals that have no expectations going in like again Mm -hmm. i I would have killed to see have seen this at the cam premiere if only because not being told for you know nine months it's the scariest film in decades (laughs) right i think another i think another point to be made though is um a lot of times so you know, there are all kinds of festivals, and there are some that are more genre-leaning, and Cannes is not necessarily, no. like, catering no. to the genre audience. So people who are coming out of Cannes are watching, like, character pieces and these, like, really slow dramas mm-hmm. and quirky mm-hmm. movies. And so to them, this is probably very scary compared to that. So that's another thing, too, is whenever I read reviews for films that I, you know, that are festival films... I tend to look at what festival they came out of now because I'm a little more aware of, okay, like Fantastic Fest is more likely to, you know, get like an audience that's used to watching horror movies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it helps you to adjust your expectations. Mm -hmm. But Ari, okay, so I have something that I'm interested to hear your thoughts on because Trace and I have kind of been batting this idea around offline in the preparation for this episode. Mm -hmm. So this is the same time period that The Witch came out and also The Guest. And I would say The Guest is a little bit more conventionally genre based. Mm -hmm. But overall, all of these films are kind of hyper stylized. They make expert use of music, but they also have like a very kind of deliberate pace. It's not quite what genre fans are looking for. And I feel like this at least in my mind, is where elevated horror starts to come into the picture in and around this time. Yeah, no, I would agree. This and The Witch to me are like kind of the first moments when I recall hearing that terrible phrase. And <laughs> and I, I feel like it's kind of funny because we just rewatched The Exorcist recently. And, right. um, and I remember telling Trace like, this is fucking good. Like we've seen The Exorcist a million times, but it's just like watching it and like really paying attention to just how it's shot, how the the pacing, the way mm. it builds. Like, The Exorcist is not a movie where, like, someone's getting slashed up every two seconds. No, it's, it's so deliberate. It's very deliberate, yeah. Well, yeah. It, it honestly reminds me of Hereditary in the way where it's more so a... I mean, okay, I'm not calling The Exorcist a drama, but, like, if you walked into it not knowing what it was, you would be like, oh, this is kind of a drama that has horror elements. Like, honestly, it's kind of the Hereditary of the 70s, but it's like what we're calling or what people are calling elevated horror now it's always existed. <laughs> like, oh, like, of course. Yeah. Like, I mean, look at Don't Look Now, right? Which I have not Rosemary's seen. Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby, yeah. yes. So it's always existed. It's shocking to me, you know, because something like Rosemary's Baby, something like The Exorcist, like, I feel like audiences were more patient back then. 
And I feel like maybe, and maybe I'm wrong, audiences today are not. Because back in the 70s and 60s for Rosemary's Baby, you know, audiences would be lined up around the theaters mm -hmm. to go see these films. And they would think they were scary. And they would think they were terrifying. I mean, The Exorcist is two hours and 12 minutes. And The Exorcism itself takes place in the last 20 minutes of the film. I think The Exorcist is such an interesting example because the number of people that I have heard who have said, oh, I forgot that it opens in Iraq. And you're like, that's the first 20 to 25 minutes of the movie. Yeah, it really mm -hmm. is. <laughs> and I think I actually posted that. <laughs> <laughs> you dumb well, shit. Even, I mean, even when we were watching it too, I, I remember like at one point I looked over at Trace. I was like, this is like the hereditary for its time. And he even said like, that's exactly what I was thinking. And it's just yeah. this idea that you know, these kind these films were like major smashes. Like people were mm -hmm. going to see them and people would sit through them and enjoy them. Mm -hmm. And and I do think that it speaks more to I guess like patience, yeah. Instant it, gratification. Yeah, the instant gratification in media in general, I think, has made people very impatient, especially when it comes to horror, which is which is a genre mm -hmm. that people tend to go to because they want to have fun. They want to be scared. They right. want it to be exciting. Well, I think also I don't want to trace everything back to it or even put the blame on it. But I think the conversation really does start to shift when we get that deluge of 80 slasher films, right? Because the editing yeah. is faster. And then when we move into the 90s, and that's when like music video directors start to be making big budget films, I feel like there's an escalation in the way that we consume media, and it is more propulsive and edited faster. So we start to expect, okay, we want faster moving things. So slowness and character based pieces almost become like a thing of the past. Well, and it's also like there's more content available, right? When The Exorcist came out, there was literally nothing like it before. True. I mean, you can say that about films nowadays, but not as many, you know, because it, and especially with like what, how many horror films have been released in 2021 already? Oh, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> like more so than like the first half of the 70s, probably. Right. <laughs> and also with the internet, you know, like we can go up and we can go look at scary things whenever we want. So... When you have a film that plays a festival like It Follows and people are saying, oh, it's one of the scariest films you'll ever see, everyone has a very specific idea of what mm. the word scary means and yes. what is scary to them. And watching a moody piece that is anxiety-inducing might not be scary for everybody. It might be boring mm. for some people. I think that's actually a, d a disservice to this conversation, the whole somewhere along the lines, the 80s slashery, the fast cuts... More blood, more gore, more explosion, more, you know, look, technology's crazy. We can do CGI. Let's make things look really wild. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think all of that, unfortunately, kind of led to this uh, link that people made. That's like the new big budget mainstream horror. So anything that's like that, it's for people who are impatient and dumb. Yeah. You know, and it's like a fucked up connection to make because, no, that's not true. Like, we, you, people like all kinds of different things for different reasons. And so... Mm -hmm. When you get this idea of, oh, okay, we're doing elevated horror now because we're not doing torture porn anymore. Because we're not doing shock factor anymore. Right. We're doing a right. slow build. And torture porn's for dumb people. And elevated horror is for educated people. And I'm just like, right. I understand where that comes from. But it's fucking wrong. And it's unfortunate because it makes, I think it like primes people when you start labeling movies like that to not like them going in. Like they're mm. like, oh, this oh, is going to sure. be some pretentious bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I've heard a lot of people say this is pretentious. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
I think you're right. What it does is it it not only divides genre fans along particular lines, like, oh, do you like elevated horror or do you like torture porn? You're like, uh, both. Thank you. I would. Like I was it about all. to say it's it's like political party lines, right? But yeah. so we've got a like our Democrats, bit. our Republicans, our Libertarians, and whatever the fuck else there is. Let's <laughs> adopt a non-binary mindset, y'all. Let's adopt a honestly mindset. Be a little bit more fluid, you fucking idiots. Come on. But I do think that part of this also and. Folks, let me climb up onto this here marketing soapbox. I do think a lot of this falls on the shoulders of the way that these films are also marketed, right? Like when we're using pull quotes from critics that say this is the scariest movie you'll ever see. Well, guess what? No, it's not. As you said, Trace, like that is so fucking subjective. You're not going to be able to deliver that. Well, and here's the thing, too. Like, when it comes to marketing, I'm like, well, they're doing their job. They are getting butts in seats by putting these quotes on there, by making it... Sure. I mean, the trailer... Oh, actually, that's another thing, too, because this film was one of the Drafthouse Selects films back when the Alamo Drafthouse was still doing that. So Mm -hmm. we saw the trailer for this movie in front of every single... I'm not even exaggerating. Because it was a Drafthouse Selects film, they put it in front of everything. If it was a PG-13 film or higher, this trailer showed in front of it. It's amazing that I like this movie as much as I do because of that. Like, we saw this trailer so much. (laughs) So many times. (laughs) Crammed down your throat, right? (laughs) But, 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 you know, the the hurt factor is, you know, so, okay, like, you, you market it like the way they did this movie but then the problem is you'll get butts and seats that first weekend yes. the word of mouth is then going the to be turns. bad mm-hmm. yes which they may be thinking well that, that's how it is like, whether word of mouth is good or not for the most part like horror films always do the best their first weekend mm-hmm. and then just like tank you know 50 sure. to 60 percent the next weekend so maybe they don't care maybe that's the in the industry like the marketing people is like it doesn't matter we just have to get people there the first weekend that's it But yes, I do think that this is a disservice because I do think maybe this film, I mean, it was successful, obviously, financially, but it wouldn't have maybe dipped as much as it did in its second weekend if it was marketed more to people's expectations of what it actually was. You know, I think Mm -hmm. I think the marketing thing, too, like that is a point, Trace, like a good point. Mm -hmm. They're doing their jobs or getting people in. And I think that like the whole process around a film's release, like should be strategic in a way that it kind of maintains integrity for the film. And I think that mm. that's where the disconnect is. Because right. if horror fans... I, I don't know. I can't speak... Okay, I'll speak for myself. I don't like to be spoiled. I don't like to see all the characters die in the trailer. I don't want to see the last shot of the film, Birdman, in the trailer. Like, <laughs> I don't, Halloween you know, And that's another thing. Jesus Christ, like, that's another uh, trailer we saw a million times Wait, because of that draft what, house presents. But we just talked about something, though. Joe, was it here? Was it on the pa- uh, Patreon? But like, we just watched something... And the trailer or the poster has, like, the last scene of the movie in it. My yeah. point is that, you know, I think in horror, too, that's that's a really unfortunate disconnect where it's like, let's just get people in because mm-hmm. it's to the point now, like, I don't want to open my eyes during trailers. Oh, sure. Go to the, film, the movies because I don't want things that I'm really excited for to mm-hmm. get spoiled. And part of that is, like, I think about a movie like The Village. Oh, yeah. The uh, marketing for that really really set the movie up for a lot of like audience disappointment and i think there are ways to do it without straight up trying to make a movie that's probably more of like a slow-paced story less bombastic than one might expect like instead of trying to make it look like that maybe you can just maintain some kind of mystery like i Mm -hmm. think the ring did a really good job of that oh my god yes it was so minimalist and it was scary as fuck and there are ways to kind of withhold and still get people in the seats i think also, yeah. Joe, the answer to that question was till death. 
the Megan Fox movie because the poster for that movie oh, is from right. the last shot of the film. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of spoilers, I haven't seen it yet, so you had the opportunity to, and you didn't want to. <laughs> okay, okay. This isn't the statute. Of, the statute of limitations is not up. Spoiler. Don't make me come over there. FYI, Trace is, and I probably have said this on past episodes, Trace is such a spoiler yeah. queen. Whenever we were first dating, it was so frustrating because I'm like, shut the fuck up. I want to watch this movie someday. Don't tell me what happened. Well, because because, because my, I know it's not right. I know it's wrong. But my mindset is, well, if I tell you something that's like really shocking, then you'll want to see it sooner. You'll want to prioritize it more. No. Oh, my God. That's a terrible mindset. I, hate that. I know. Studios, hire me for your marketing team. No. Please don't. Ari, the number of times that Trace has said on the podcast when he's watching a new film, he's like, yeah, I just pop open the Wikipedia entry and follow along as I'm watching. I'm like, what are you talking about? It is such a shame to see that happen in real time, too. I'm like, I know. Yeah. He, gets, he gets so mad at me. <laughs> but here's the thing. Okay, so as much as I don't condone not your behavior, Trace, but like the way that this all plays out, right. I think one thing that it has led to is this weird legacy that develops around certain films and yes a lot of them are elevated horror films but they come out they ride this wave of hysteria of just absolutely gobsmacked reviews and audience reactions they tank because they don't meet enough people's expectations and then somewhere in the next five to ten years they become modern classics that people cannot shut the fuck up about because we realize oh when i take the film at face value yeah this is an amazing film. And, and that is why, I mean, same with Hereditary. Hereditary is a movie that I really liked when I first saw it, but I, I saw it three times in a like the year afterwards. I, I rewatched mm-hmm. it three times, and every time I liked it more. And mm-hmm. it's the same with this film. Like, the, the more distance I am from the hype, and the more I'm like, okay, like, I'm just watching this movie as is, mm-hmm. I appreciate it so much more. And I get that not everyone's going to want to do that, you know? Like, I'm, try- I'm trying to think of a classic film that I didn't... Re- oh, actually, Rosemary's Baby. I've seen it once, and I honestly didn't like it that much. I love it so much. I'm sure I would like it more if I watched it again without the mindset of, oh, it's one of the scariest films ever made. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think... I guess along those lines, like, with Hereditary, there is enough of a bombastic nature to it, like, by the end of it, where it's fucking batshit crazy that... It does kind of pay off. It does, yeah, and more so. And the thing is that, actually, for me, I was like, I kind of wish there was something a little more, a little weirder about it. Like, it's a pretty straightforward story that kind of grows out of a story that's about, like, grief and, you know, whatever. We're not talking about that movie today but i love that movie but it is a movie that when i walked out of the theater i was like i didn't love that as much as everyone it's like i couldn't get shocked enough and people were shocked by the you know the piano wire and stuff and i was like yeah it was good but like i'm not i mean it's not that scary but re-watching it for what it is and it's a very very effective story about grief it's mm-hmm. so good and it was never a movie that i like whenever like you said we, we watched that movie a ton after after theaters and we were showing it to all kinds of people in our families and like yeah. I had like <laughs> no, two days in a row no, would watch no, it. <laughs> no, we, we were home for Thanksgiving uh, and we showed it to his family on Wednesday and my family on Thursday. <laughs> right? Like that is a film that is doing its job. It yeah. just maybe not upon first release. So my, I guess my thing with this, with It Follows and how I, why I brought up that is because It Follows is a movie that I love to show to specific people. Okay. And people that I know get the vibe or at least that can like vibe with it the way that i do mm-hmm. and and a lot of it is around i guess this idea around like uh, the director talked about you know oh, based on an anxiety dream around mental health and around kind of just general fear and i think i kind of re-fell into this movie the last year because of the pandemic and right 
I mean, we can talk about that right now, but um, or whenever it's relevant. But I do think mm-hmm. that a lot of that stems from mental health journeys and how you see these reflected. And, you know, again, why, like, oh, my God, you have anxiety. Why would you watch horror movies? I've had people ask me that a lot in life. Mm-hmm. Like, doesn't that stress you out? I'm like, no, it's very controlled. It's, like, it's totally different from my actual generalized anxiety or social anxiety. It's, like, <laughs> it's controlled. I don't know. It's it's different. Like, whereas in real life, it feels very out of control and it's genuinely terrifying to feel like for no reason one day, like, oh my God, I feel like I might die or I feel like I'm chronically ill or I'm terminally ill or something like that. There's something about that fear that is kind of like out of your hands and just really terrifying and overwhelming. And it's almost like seeing something that mirrors that. But again, in a controlled way, it's empowering to watch. See, it's interesting because, so for me, I, I don't suffer from anxiety, but, like, I, I've been anxious before, but I've never, I guess, what I, an anxiety episode or whatever. So it's foreign for me, but that is why, though, and especially on this most recent viewing for me, like, I felt the most anxious I felt watching this film. Just, again, even though I know what's going to happen, but I just feel it. And because it's a foreign experience for me, that was, that made it scary for me. So it's like an opposite mm. effect for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this film is so expert at capturing what that anxiety feels like. So that mm-hmm. I think, Trace, what you're talking about is that even though you don't suffer from this in your quote-unquote regular life, right? the film is so good at encapsulating it that you're actually getting a sense of what people who do suffer from it feel like. That is a much more eloquent way of saying what I was mm. trying to say, so yes. <laughs> I couldn't think of the words, but yes, no, you're 100% correct. And and that's why I respect this movie so much, because, I don't know, it's like giving me a taste of it, but like I don't have to actually like live it. <laughs> it's that controlled bit, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because I'm what I'm fascinated with, and you know, I feel like we talked about this a couple of times this year, I feel like we'll talk about it a couple more times this year, we have struck upon a couple of films that are really great at balancing a number of different, sometimes conflicting sounding readings. Like we experienced that with Daniel Isn't Real. We've got a mm-hmm. great film coming up in a couple of weeks that I'm not going to spoil that we spend oh, yeah. a lot of time talking about. <laughs> So some people find a fairly straightforward, simple reading where this film is saying, yep, it's like a PSA about safe sex, kind of like you said, Ari. And then there's a reading that I found from Tatcha Lane in a piece called Traumatic Horror Beyond the Edge, It Follows and Get Out, where she is talking about this film as evidence of trauma. So the way that you experience trauma and then you continue to relive trauma through various episodes and it never really goes away. And then Ari, you're saying, oh, this is like anxiety and living with being anxious. And then, of course, there's that fear of mortality and getting old and like what it means when you finally come to the realization that one day you will die. So, okay, no, I watched it this time as like, yes, the it is like creeping death. And Ari, what is that that big mouth quote? where It's like, death is completely random and uncontrollable and it lurks around every corner. <laughs> and I was like, that's it. That is the it and it follows. Says the mother to her child. Says the mother to her. <laughs> oh my God. Plug for big mouth. It's funny. <laughs> also tackling mental health in a very yeah, uh, well, accessible yeah. way, so, right? So Joe, like, I, I'm glad you brought up that reading too, because again, one thing I wanted, I, I think why I picked this film uh, again is because it, it resonates with me on so many levels. On the trauma level, like I absolutely feel that too. And trauma, you know, it's like um, your fight or flight system is fucked whenever you have trauma, it's frozen. 
in the time where you where you were first dysregulated in that way, where you were violated or when something really terrible happened. And I think that that's what this this movie really does a good job of kind of com- conveying that too, that like constant hypervigilance mm-hmm. and your reactions to any stimuli, like anything that feels related to that, you start freaking out and it's out of your control. And that's definitely a really, I think, accurate reading too. I actually like that you say too that time freezes in that moment because again, when we're playing with timelessness in this film where mm-hmm. we don't know what, I mean, granted, you know, the, the director has said, you know, it's to, to give it the dream logic, you know, we're in a dream. So it doesn't right. make nothing really quote unquote make sense. But if we're also going with a trauma reading, yeah, if time freezes when you experience trauma, that plays a part in the timeline of this film as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Tarjolaine actually elaborates. So trauma is not merely an event from the past insofar as it is felt as an impending catastrophe always about to happen, which mm-hmm. P.S. just that fucking line. I'm like, okay, now I'm anxious because that yeah. is horrifying. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's awful. And when we talk, I mean, like, I, I, I pulled the quote that Yara says from, from the idiot at the end, but like, you know, I, I try to do so much because I've never read Dostoevsky's The Idiot, <laughs> but um. Don't worry, neither has she, because she's only reading from the first 20 pages. Oh my god, okay. Well, no, because there's a couple, like, I found a couple pieces that were like, oh, it doesn't actually, it doesn't, there's not really any meaning <laughs> for it in this film. It's just there, except for that last line that she says in the end, which we'll talk about later, but, um, but yeah. Well, I think the lines that they highlight, yeah, the lines that they highlight are very, very relevant mm-hmm. to the movie. <laughs> really yeah. relevant. Like, speaking of multiple readings, so I guess, like, so for me, it was, like, the anxiety, I got that. I think that that was kind of my first reading when I first saw the film and then it was more like depression and just any kind of, you know, like, like you said, like trauma is one situation and one PTSD, something that someone's experiencing that is really impactful in their lives that, that leads to this hypervigilant state. Mm-hmm. And then there's something else about it though. And it's dread. Yes. Like, and, and, and with the pandemic, like this movie really, really reflected dread in a way that I had not experienced until the pandemic. And I honestly can't think of the last time, but it's not like full on nihilistic, but it's kind of like, if this is going to happen to me anyway, then what does it fucking matter? And it's, Mm. that's a really hard thing to feel and think. And it is scary because it's kind of like, what do you do with your life then? Like, what do you, and and I think that this movie reflects that in a way that I, I really resonated with because you know, in a global pandemic, the idea is like, it's, I mean, even still now, like it's, I think regularly, like, is this going to ever go away? Like, is this ever going to be normal again? Are we ever going to be okay? Am I always going to have to fear getting this virus, you know? And it's, Mm -hmm. and it's something that I would actively think about all the time. And again, we're being, we're home and I'm watching these movies all the time. And I find myself gravitating towards these very like bleak films that are a little bit like, you know, like you said, the way this movie ends, it's not, it's kind of anticlimactic. And it's a little bit of, mm. like, an acceptance of that. And I think, in a way, the the only other movie that I've seen that made me feel like this was um, She Dies Tomorrow. Oh, oh yeah. 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 But um, that, that movie, too, like, I love that movie for the same reason. And it wasn't even ma- made with the pandemic in mind, but it reflects it so beautifully that I, for me, I was like, oh, my God, I feel seen. And seeing it follows now, it has that same feeling for me where I'm like, thank God, like, Someone has to feel this somewhere. So if you're out there and you agree with that reading, please let me know because it's very comforting. 
to know that that's a, you know that's a thing that people experience in times like this. I mean, and and you know, as we've said, there are many readings for this film. And if we're even like, if we want to even use like the quote unquote basic STD reading, I do think there's a reading of HIV and AIDS that could be read here, especially if we want to like compare it to like the height of the AIDS crisis in the '80s. Mm-hmm. Of like, yeah, it's this is a disease specifically for you know gay men that's constantly following you, following this community around, mm-hmm. and you don't know when it's gonna get you. So. Yeah, and the the creeping sense of dread that any person you encounter could be the person that attacks and ultimately kills you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, oh, actually, and even with um, Hugh slash whatever his real name is in this movie, what Jeff. is the urban legend? Yes. <laughs> but what was the urban legend where it's like oh, AIDS that, Mary, yeah. where it was like a woman would go around sleeping with men and the next morning she would like duck out of the apartment and they would wake up and it, like, written in lipstick on the mirror would be, hi, you have AIDS now or whatever, enjoy. And... Yeah. That's basically what Hugh slash Jeff does to Jay in this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, again, that idea of constantly being hypervigilant and having, whenever it does impact you, when you are touched by this dread, whatever form it is, it's like, what do you do with it? And I love that we see Jay kind of, like, going through different phases and, like, yeah. breaking down and then, like, isolating herself. Like, even there's a part where yeah. he comes to see her and... She's, like, in her room by herself. Like, everyone else is downstairs. Or and this is after she's already passed it on to him. Uh-huh. And so, I, I mean, things like that. Like, watching it with that reading in mind, it really kind of changed my experience about it. And in a way, it made the ending, which, again, can feel very ambiguous and, like, bleak, kind of, I don't know, like, oddly positive and hopeful in that some a lot of these things are easier to handle when you have someone with you who gets it. And so, by like, by her giving it to a friend... That she's known a lot of her life and they're holding hands and walking together and it's kind of like, all right, this shit's going to come for us, but at least this person's here with me. That's kind of how I read it now. And I know you could probably read it in a lot of other ways, but that's how I choose to be hopeful well, by the end of this movie. And see, but see, on this is the viewing where like I actually detested Paul so much <laughs> for so much oh, of this film. <laughs> terrible. Terrible. So like, even with the ending, like, I, in the past, I, I have had that that similar, like, reaction to it. I'm like, okay, well, at least she has someone. Like, they're probably going to die. Like, I mean, because that's the thing, right? Like, in this movie, even if you pass it on, like, you are constantly, for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. going to be worried about this thing. Like, mm-hmm. so I was like, okay, cool, yeah, like, that's nice. Like, she has someone to be with. But then, like, this whole time, I was, like, just paying attention to Paul's every reaction. Like, everything. Kira Gilchrist does a very good job in this film, portraying mm-hmm who is meant to be kind of the nice, sensitive friend, right? But eh. almost everything he does is very um, advantageous. It's self-serving. It's yeah. self-serving, it's a, yeah, and yes. it's a little manipulative. It feels manipulative, like. yeah. Which, it kind of is the same for Greg, but not as much because he's at least kind of an openly, oh, an open person. asshole about it. Yeah. But whereas an Paul, open asshole, phrasing. Yes. <laughs> but whereas with Paul, it's like, oh, like, you know, he's the friend, but it's like, no, but he's also a huge piece of shit because he is a... He feels like a jilted lover, even though that's not what he is. He feels yeah. betrayed by her. He's jealous constantly. And even when he he offers to have sex with her, Ugh. it reeks. It, oh, like it's watching desperate. The, watching the, it's very desperate. Watching their sex scene, too, I'm like, there's no way she's enjoying this. Not just because it's him, but just well, Even at the end, she's not enjoying it. No. But it's like, but what's the alternative? And which yeah. is why I think, like, it is bleak. It does reflect that reality of, like, okay, well, sometimes, like, the person that relates to you the most is someone like is not someone you want like mm-hmm. i would love it if you know trace knew what that felt like yeah <laughs> you know like to feel like the world is ending all the time and he doesn't and sometimes you just got to find that wherever you can and that's like which is unfortunate that i think that that's how what happens to this character by the end i do think it's like it's sad it is sad and he 
I don't read Paul as, you know, awfully as y'all do. <laughs> I think he's like a socially awkward, like kind of like a pitiable dude. Yeah. And who's who's just like a nerd and he always liked her. I don't know. It's not that flagrant to me. I don't think he knows he's a shitty dude. Like, I don't, I don't think, think so he's either. malicious yeah. about setting it up. But yeah, I find it so hard to read him as anything other than predatory. Like he's capitalizing on her bad situation to get the thing he's always wanted. Yeah, I was like, I was even throwing the term incel around in my head, but that's not what he is. Yeah, but it, not it, quite. But it was like kind of in the ballpark of incel is how I was watching. But think of it this way, like what, like ultimately he's literally saying like, yeah, I believe you. I know this is real. Yeah. Give me your virus too and we'll have it together. Right. That's how much I love you. And I believe that that's what he yeah. believes. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I don't disagree with that at all. Mm-hmm. And Mitchell is actually on record because people have asked him about the Paul character and how this interaction goes down. And he said, uh, well, you know, he is a teenage boy, so he's dumb enough to think, oh, sure, I'll sleep with this girl that I really like. And I haven't really thought about the fact that this will then haunt me for the rest of my life. <laughs> like, yeah. Paul's just kind of, he's a bit dense in that way. <laughs> Well, thanks, David Robert Mitchell, for ruining my suggestion that he's not a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Your reading is is always valid because you can make the argument. Author intent does not matter once it leaves the creator. Also, Indeed. I don't I don't like relate to Paul in this movie, so I don't care either way. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> oh man. So. How about we talk about a couple of specific scenes? And if we want to bounce around, that's fine. But I yeah. think there's probably key things in this film that are going to stand out that we want to address. So, yeah. Ari, why don't you kick off your thoughts on the opening of the film? Yeah, I was going to say, I think, like, if anyone was going to talk about a scene from this movie, the opening is probably the first that comes to mind. So it's one of the most effective and creepiest openings in a horror film in the last like, three, four decades. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wonderful. So this is a line from Tarja Lane's article. She has a couple of critics that she names. They address the openings that often cover the whole film in a nutshell, offering watching instructions that give the spectator a sense of what the inner dynamics of the film will be by setting the tone and the atmosphere that prepares people. So thinking about that specifically with this film, the tone and the atmosphere that is set in this opening is best characterized as haunting, anxious anticipation of a threat that seems to come from all directions at once, and of which there is no escape. Mm. I mean, the Accurate. way the way this sequence is filmed. So, I mean, we have a single take, right, of this girl running out of her house. I love that we don't see it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you walk into the movie... Imagine walking into this movie not knowing what it was about, right? <laughs> it's just a girl running in a circle. Well, and that's, I love that she's like running in like a circle, like to get around this thing. It's so good. I love too, there's like a shot where like, I think it's when she's on the beach already, but it like goes back to her car. Yes. No. And, mm -hmm. But it's like, but you don't see anything. And probably no. later in the movie, you would see it. But like, I just love that it does that because in hindsight, when you rewatch a movie, you're like, oh yeah, it's well, there. And here's the thing too. Let's talk about what a lesser movie would do. A lesser movie, let's say during the rule explanation scene when, when Jay is in the chair, it would maybe flash back to that beach scene mm. and show show that same shot with it walking towards this girl. Right. Yeah. To be like, just in case you didn't know what was going on in the first scene. <laughs> that is so funny because I've actually never read that as being what you're talking about. I always take that as she 
knows that it's coming and she's just staring into the abyss like she has tried to protect herself by putting mm. her back up against the wall the wall being the water yeah and in this case she's just waiting like to me the it's almost scarier knowing that she knows it's coming but that it's not even there yet i, I think it's scary either way and of yeah. course i mean this well, is... we, we also don't know. Because no, yeah. Because that's not a cut story. It's no. but, daylight. But, but that makes it scarier, right? Because we don't know. But for some viewers, that is not scary. That is frustrating, True. right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I mean, so this is... Not course, us. No, no, not, not, us. not us. But um, no, this is, of course, when we get the title the, the title track, the, the opening track, Heels, by Disasterpiece. And it pairs with the clink, clank, clink, clank of her heels on this concrete, which, mm. ah, it's just... Mm-hmm. As Ari said, it is one of my favorite opening scenes of horror, like of all time. We do this thing sure. kind of regularly between ourselves and whenever we have friends over. But like, if we've been drinking or whatever, we'll do this thing where we'll like alternate picking videos on YouTube to mm-hmm. watch. And typically, I pick music videos, but we'll do but, horror scenes. Well, yeah, we'll do scenes <laughs> or we'll do trailers. But this is one that recently I've picked because I I love this scene, this scene and the school the, scene, the classroom. Yeah. Well, it it honestly yeah. feels like it could be a short film. Like yes. you could just yeah. make this. You would have to do a little bit of exposition so that people understand she is actually being haunted by something. But apart from that, it is so effective. And like Tarjolaine says, this opening gives you everything you need to know about how to watch this movie. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, when people that say, oh, this movie opens, it really grabs you when it opens, but then it never matches that again. I, oh, I disagree. I, can, <laughs> I, 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 I do disagree. I can see why someone would think that if they're looking for a body count. because Right. There's only two. There's only two, which I saw that and I was like, that, oh, no, that is that right. That doesn't seem right. Oh, yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> it's, yeah. Ju- it's just the girl and Greg. Granted, and, and of course, we open with like her body, you know, the smash cut to the, her body, oh, the so leg broken backwards. Oh. It's a great, it's a great tableau. But again, if you're like, okay, cool, this is what I'm going to get for the rest of it's this movie. It's also like, I love it too. I love that shot because it's so confusing because you're like, what does this thing do to you? Like, uh-huh. what is this? Like, well, it's so, it's so strange that you're like, how does that happen to your body? Yeah. And we never really well, know. Okay, really quickly, too, because so so Mitchell has been pestered for years, especially when the movie came out, about the rules of it. And oh, God, would, who could would, care? Would, That's it follow, would it follow you on a plane? I mean, here's the thing. As soon as I saw, and granted, you know, we can argue about, oh, well, do you need to know this to enjoy it? But, like, you know, he nope. says dream logic. I'm like, yeah. you say dream logic, cool. Nothing, I don't need to know anything. Like, people are like, oh, well, how does uh, Hugh slash Jeff know all the rules? And it's like, I don't care how he knows all the rules. Like, literally, the logic behind any of this makes no sense. You can, People are like, oh, well, why is it standing on the roof? Why isn't it walking towards her? I don't give a fuck. Well, because it's, I mean, it's, I mean, at different points, it's like taunts you. Like, it just stares at her mm-hmm. at other points, too. Like, at the pool, whenever it's her her dad yeah um but like on the roof it's her i i, I even thought that because i remembered it being on the roof like on a random roof later but it's, <laughs> it's on her, her roof it's, it's her so roof. that makes even more sense but even then like i think that a movie not giving you every single detail doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense i think even in the dream logic of this watching this i i, I was thinking about that too with like jeff like knowing the rules and i'm like well we don't know that she didn't explain it to him the mm-hmm. next day or well, we, no, we no, 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 we do, because he says it was a one-night stand. I don't yeah, even but know what if he, like, oh, yeah, left but... her a note? We don't yeah, know. Like, that's I'm just what I'm saying. Like, there that's are true. things... I've talked about this, I think, on both of the episodes I've been on, but, like, I, fi- I find ways of making things make sense in my mind. Yes, so whenever people yes. bring up, like, <laughs> plot holes, I'm like, you shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, it's because this thing we didn't see, that was cut yeah. in my no, version. but that's also called watching a movie. Like, we don't yeah. need everything spoon-fed to us because we can narratively fill in the gaps, and it's not the filmmaker's... Right goal nor should it be to fill in every little question that we have like 
we're being told a story here. This isn't some kind of factual, real-life creature that we need to know the ins and outs of. And, 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 you know, people can quibble all they want with, like, plot holes here, plot holes here. But there's a difference between a movie actually having, like, a gaping plot hole Mm -hmm. and you combing through looking for problems with it. Yeah, and also, like, there's a difference between movies that are, like, very intentionally set in our present reality as we know it. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. movies like this where you can't even tell what time period. Is it, like, the 90s? Is it the early aughts? Is it now? Is it an alternative time? It's it's all of it. It, it, The answer is yes. And I think the dream logic part, it works this movie so well it's like nightmare logic rather because it's like yeah. you know it, it just makes sense like it's like if i was going to make a movie of one of my most horrible nightmares none of it would fucking make sense and it would scare the shit out of you so like yeah yeah i get it like that's i think that's a great response from him just kind of even just describing what it was uh inspired by it like i think that sets up the expectation and even then it's far more linear than you would expect yeah but there's stuff that's weird and it, it's not necessarily explained it is I'm going to tell you right now, it is just because it's not conventionally scary. Like, the narrative is very straightforward. It is just not conventionally horror enough for some people. Well, I think it's that. And also, this is a film that trusts its audience. And it, yeah. again, this is where we get into the dangers of, oh, it's elevated. Oh, it's smart. Like, it's yeah. treating its audience with respect. I'm not saying that. I'm not equating that. I'm merely saying that this is a film that doesn't give us everything when we want it or maybe even need it. Because... I'll confess, it's not until I actually started to research the movie for this recording that I was like, oh, that woman that they first see when he's explaining the rules to her and she's strapped into the wheelchair, that's his mom. I never made that connection. Oh, I don't think I ever made that connection either. Yeah. And the idea that it appears to you as your naked mother, because that would be Mm -hmm. more unnerving than if she had clothes on. Like, there, there's just all these little things where, you know, they never say, oh, that's Jay's dad. And that's why she doesn't tell yeah. her sister that that's what it looks like at the pool. You have to put it together based Which on I the Polaroids that. or the pictures in her room. Even the funny part about it is, like, you wouldn't necessarily say that in real life. Like, if this is just happening as it... Mm-hmm. You wouldn't say, it's dad, it's dad. Yeah, yeah. Just, like, you wouldn't... There wouldn't be this, like, clunky well, exposition of you being like, that's my naked mom. You know what I'm saying? But, like, it mm-hmm. makes it better, I think, and more effective when they don't and that's what i mean by like it rewards repeat viewings because again once you get used to certain things then you can your brain can start paying attention to other things which is why you might pick up on things like little tiny minutiae of details like that Mm -hmm. yeah no and that's i think one of the reasons why this film is so great at rewarding repeat viewings because those elements are there if you want to look for them but again they're not essential to you understanding or enjoying the film on a first watch yeah, I completely agree with that. So what's what other scenes did y'all did y'all love? Well, do you want to talk more about this sex scene? Like I I really enjoyed watching the date unfold before the sex scene the next night. Again, it never occurred to me that the reason that he makes them leave the theater is because he sees it there. I oh, always no, I thought that. the first iteration was just when they're at the diner and she goes to take the drink and then we see a figure crossing the parking lot. So it's, I think it's kind of funny because whenever I say the opening too, like even rewatching it, I was like, is this still the opening? Right. Like, when does it end? <laughs> is there a title card? And there's not a title card to no, the end of the movie. It's at the end. I, I actually was watching it and post beach scene when it's her going on her, you know, she's in her pool and then she goes on her date. Mm-hmm. I was like, wait, maybe the title card shows up after she gets infected mm-hmm. with it, but it just no. doesn't. But that scene is also the particular one, I, I, the movie theater scene, I think is really great because it does such a good job of establishing kind of like, 
I don't know, like it's just so natural. Like the the way the dialogue's written, it feels very authentic. That date game they play, I yes. fucking love it. I want to play that with like friends, and I love people watching. So I think that'd be like a super <laughs> fun game to play. But it's just like it's a really cool and unexpected setup for a super creepy moment. Mm-hmm. I don't have an answer to this, but if listeners, because the movie they are seeing on this date is Charade with yes. Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant, and I would love to know if anyone thinks there's any um, significance to that. Yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> I think one of them is a liar in the movie. Like the whole thing is a ruse. Yeah. So. Oh. Uh. Act- oh. Yeah. Oh, that actually makes sense. Yeah, because Cary Grant co- goes through what three or four different identities in that movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> there you go. And you love that movie. Oh, I, Charade is like one of my favorite. I do like that movie. The first time we watched it, I was like, "This movie's ridiculous." It, it is a screwball <laughs> comedy slash thriller slash heist. Slash, I mean, it's so fun. Oh, it's so good. No, so good. Makes, that totally makes sense. It's a mashup. <laughs> I do love these opening scenes, too, because they very clearly establish a sense of voyeurism. You know, obviously, we're watching a movie, but any time characters themselves go to see a movie in a movie, it's like we're looking for meaning in the film that they're watching, Mm -hmm. unless it's to establish a timeline. But even when she's in the pool and she sees the neighbor kids staring at her, there's this element of like people always watching other people, which will then cue us to be like, you need to be watching people because it could always be it. That's actually a great point because I never remembered that part of the kids. The boys? No, me too. Yeah. Me too. I was really like, what? I was like, is this like a director's cut? Or I, it was weird right? because it felt inconsequential, but the way you're saying it, the way you're describing it now makes way more sense. Well, I also didn't realize that the boy, when they're at the lake house and the boy that sticks his head through the, the mm-hmm. hole, that's oh. one of the boys that's looking at her. Oh. That, that's one of the boys next door that spies on her. Ooh, you also just gave me full body shivers because that is so creepy. That moment where it shrinks from a full size like from Yara to this little mm-hmm. boy in yeah. the space of just seconds. Well, I love and, that. and also, like, I mean, again, I forgot the scene when, like, you know, when she's in the bathroom looking at her genitals because mm-hmm. she's, like, looking for signs of STDs. And yeah. there's actually a good jump scare <laughs> where yeah. something hits her window. But the little boy is standing on her roof, mm-hmm. spying at her through the bathroom window. Oh, I didn't notice that either. Which is foreshadowing when the man will appear on her roof later in the film. Yes. Holy mm-hmm. shit. I didn't notice that. See, this is why I need to keep watching it, like, every week. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, you can also follow red as a sign of danger. So, like, in that scene, the thing that hits her window is a red ball. A red ball. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I think I think it's so funny about, because when y'all mentioned, like, oh, there's, like, a lack of jump stairs. I think this movie has some of my favorite scares, and they are a little jumpy. I think maybe if the music was synced differently, audiences would react certain ways. No, it, it's when they're going through Jeff's house, and the wall falls off whenever, and, like, her sister's mm, on the other side. Yep. It, it is a jump scare in the sense that the, the the wall makes a noise, but there's no music cue with it. And so, again, that's the lack of a conventional jump scare there. Well, I think even, too, like, another another scene, if we're talking about, like, when it pops out and it looks like a different thing. The scene where um, they open the door and it's Yara and then the tall man comes up behind her. That, oh. to me, was like, I remember being, like, terror. I was like, oh, that was fucking scary when I saw that in theaters. I still think it's creepy as well. And when you read haters' uh, opinions on this film, that's the scene where they say, oh, that's the only time the film worked for me. That's the only scary scene. Let's rewind, though, back to the actual, like, date night slash sex scene, though, because I also, and maybe this is something that, um, we as cisgender men don't understand but like yes they they have consensual sex in this film but then she is assaulted yeah. afterwards yeah. and and again let's say you're watching this movie and you don't know what the premise is mm-hmm. this could just be a story of trauma of a girl who is chloroformed and abused post-sex you know yep i do wonder if there are people out there who like view even this scene as terrifying before we oh, even 100%. get to the end i find it scary 
Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's terrifying. And it's also because it's so unexpected because they have such great rapport. And again, they did, they had consensual sex and they seem to really like each other. And he seems very genuine with her, and, mm-hmm. which again does not, you know, doesn't yeah. make him not like, means creep nothing. or whatever. <laughs> right. But, um, but I, th- I think the, the moment where he comes up behind her in the car and then he like chloroforms her, it's always shocking because I kind of forget that that's how he yes. gets her in the wheelchair. Well, yep. also because you think he's going back there to get beers, he gets a beer. Before he chloroforms her, he puts a beer down on the seat beside her, meaning he chloroforms her and is going to drink a beer afterwards. I noticed that too oh. this time, and I was like, that's kind of fucked up. I mean, it's the same thing whenever he's giving her the rules, and he's like, I'm saying, I'm telling you all this to help you. Well, you are, but you're also saying this to help yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she doesn't get caught. Yeah, after you gave her this, like, deadly virus. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but I'm trying to help you, though. Because even this time, I was watching, and I'm like, why does he still have her wrists attached to the wheelchair isn't it in his best interest if he lets her go and i realize no he does need to make sure she hears everything and at one point he even says make sure you remember this because he needs her to remember this because it will prolong her life thereby prolonging his life and then like even when he drops her in the street he's like don't let it touch you that's like the last thing he well i'm gonna put hugh jeff as better than jay in this instance because he does technically help her by giving her all the information well no because <laughs> <laughs> because he basically sits there with her with her and's like waits for it to come so she can actually see it yes what I do miss in this movie and I wish we had I wish we had a realization from Greg before he dies that she was right yeah because he does not believe her never not once and it really drives me insane yeah that's why i am very happy when he dies but and his scene is also really effective and scary and yes. it's his mom you know her tits out and yeah. she mm-hmm. like humps him to death basically she rides him to death man yeah <laughs> which well so do we think that that's what happened to the girl in the beginning by the way that do you think it, she was fucked to death basically you know i think i do see do you i, I guess like that's it's hard to tell because there aren't enough deaths for us to see how it varies but if you look at the position of her leg it's you raise the leg up to get better access yeah and he then breaks it by shoving it too hard whereas with greg it's just his mom is riding him basically yeah yes and there's goo everywhere i mean it it wouldn't it it makes sense given like how it's um transmitted and what yeah and I think that's why people automatically say like, oh, yeah, this is an STI because we see two characters, well, at least one character who is fucked to death. And then there is this idea that, you know, Jay is looking at her vagina, mm-hmm. you know, for symptoms of some kind. Yeah. Actually, that is something too. Um, well, A, I mean, so, hey, from the sex scene, which is kind of juxtaposed with like, yeah, she's like, you know, holding the flower, like she's playing with the flower, which mm-hmm. I know it's not a deflowering because we know that her and Greg had sex in high school. But I also love that they call the cops. She reports this incident. We see the cops investigating. Mm-hmm. We don't have a stupid cop scene in this movie where they're like, uh, yeah, you're just a, a dumb girl. Thank yep. God. Because I don't know that I can handle another dumb cop scene. It just, those are so frustrating for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I actually like a lot of these scenes, especially on this last rewatch. I feel like they can note that Jay, like it's insight into how she experiences the world because there's a lot of moments where she is just kind of one with nature. Like our introduction to her is in the pool uh, later when they're talking to Jeff Hugh and he's like reiterating his bullshit rules and rationale. We see that she's putting just like little pieces of grass on her leg. I think it's part of how she calms herself, but also how she experiences or maybe like de-stresses 
I'm glad you brought that up because that's a really, um, that's like a therapy. That's a therapy tactic for like anxiety and whenever you feel dysregulated. Okay. It's like mindfulness. And so it's connecting with the, and, and I, again, this is what I do normally, but, <laughs> <laughs> but my but mindfulness is like, you know, different ways to do it. But a lot of it is like orienting yourself to your surroundings. And she does that quite a bit. And it looks a little, at first I was like, oh, it looks like she's dissociating right. a bit. But I do think maybe a lot of it is grounding. Like you could read it that way and it makes a lot of sense considering she, just experience you know maybe it's something that's always comforting for her because she's obviously doing it before she gets um assaulted yeah and yeah i I like that you brought that up because it it is like a i could see that as being like a good little coping mechanism for her i do want to commend micah monroe in this film too because i I, I don't hate her well no 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 no, 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 i don't hate her but there was something we watched with her i guess but i was like she kind of gives the same monotone performance for me and everything she does and right. i was thinking of this independence day resurgence and something else maybe the even stranger. the guest the guest the guest the, no the stranger from what's that channel that's no longer in existence with the short oh yes uh it was her in a uh bill dane, dane dehan D- dane dehan yeah uh, it was the quibi show oh right yes. slash you string them all together and it's one movie it's fine <laughs> I liked her in that, and I liked well, no, that but, movie. But I was like, oh, she kind of does the same type of... And the, the one movie I saw where I was like, oh, thank God, she's doing something different was Greta. Yes. Because she plays the kind of wild best friend to Chloe Grace Moretz's, like, straight girl. Mm-hmm. But watching this, again, like, the fifth or sixth time, I was like, oh, man, you know, she's really good in this. And... Right. When she is afraid, like, I feel afraid. Like, she, yeah. like, conveys fear so well in this movie. Specifically the scene before before we get the kitchen slash tall man scare. Like, mm-hmm. it is just, like, oh, God. Oh, she's yeah, so one of my favorite moments with her performance, and I, I love Micah Monroe, but uh, one of my favorite moments is when she's in the hospital. I believe it's after the car accident, after she steals Greg's car mm-hmm. to escape the beach. Right. She wakes up and is looking over in the hallway and she hears footsteps and she like there's like a tear that just drops out of her eye and she's like terrified and then a nurse walks by that hospital scene uh, yes is is, so effective is so scary (laughs) and i love it like there oh there's no scare though like nothing actually happens and you're like no but it's all there like it's always happening that's the fucked up part it's like it's always scary because you're just like anything can be interrupted by this Mm -hmm. thing you know and that's i think that's what makes this movie so so actually scary and effective and it's like non-stop <laughs> yeah. scary to me and that actually gently foreshadows how greg is going to go right it's when you go to sleep or when you're incapacitated in bed that's when it's easiest to get you right when you have to close your eyes when you can't escape it because you can't move well that's the thing too i was like i mean again like if i was in this movie if i was a character i do not know how i would ever be able to sleep again like i have no mm-hmm. idea at all yeah because one of the other genius ideas of this is that no one else can see it. Yeah. So it's not like you could post a watch, which again, I think actually lends credence to your reading, Ari, of a hopefulness at the end of the film, because now there's two of them. So hypothetically, one of them could sleep and the other one could keep their eyes a watch. I mean, honestly, if this was me, I'd be fucking all my friends and be like, okay, we're all going to see this thing. <laughs> and until we die, we're going to, you know, it's like, we might as well accept it. <laughs> oh my god guys i went to a circuit party you'll never believe what happened <laughs> i mean honestly oh yeah that was something too uh, at, a, at a festival or something some man asked uh, some, some man someone asked uh <laughs> i don't know if it was a man some someone asked mitchell like oh like would you be protected from it if, if you fuck someone of the same sex or um and there was something else if and he used a condom if he used a condom and I, he was like yeah yeah, yeah you, can, you can pass it, it literally it just any kind of penetration doesn't matter <laughs> mm-hmm. 
He's like, but what about blowies? What about a handy jam? But I'm like, why are you going through these kind of... Who cares? (laughs) Yeah. People just want to ruin the fun. (laughs) Can we talk about the lady at the school? Yes. Oh, yes. So this is obviously a Halloween homage, but not as egregious as, say, the same homage in Halloween 2018. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about Halloween homages, a lot of people read the opening scene as a homage to the original as well. I could see that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because so much of this film is actually about the quote unquote safety of the suburbs and how nothing can get you there, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Which is especially important that it takes place in Detroit and there is the reference to Eight Mile yeah. later mm-hmm. in the film. But yeah, absolutely. This school scene is very much like, I'm looking at the window and daydreaming and holy shit, what is that? I saw I saw someone talk about how it's like, oh, um, the reason it's an old woman specifically in this scene is because she's in school. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, you're going to all this hard work and stuff in school to like, you know, do something. Well, this is going to be you soon is this old hag. Which I, I was like, oh, that's such a, like, again, if we're talking about how it is trying to like mint, like get in your, your mind before it kills you. Um, that's such a great way of doing it. Well, I think there's also something extremely unnerving about an environment that should be populated almost exclusively by young people. Mm-hmm. And then there's this very elderly woman who should be standing out and causing a big scene. Like everybody should be reacting to her. And the fact that no one does is like, wait, what's happening? Oh my God, am I the only person who can see that? And shit, that's shit, an- shit, shit, shit. it's another part too where uh, voyeurism is kind of, it's like kind of thrown in there a little bit because Greg at the beginning of that scene is staring at her. Yes. And it's just yeah. like, and I noticed that today. I was like, God, what a fucking creep. Would no, he, Gre- Greg is the worst mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, this is also where, again, we get a lot of this camera work where it's like, whether it's a 360 degree spin and by the time we get back, it's closer yes. or we're cutting away and back and it's closer. Like there's something mm-hmm. so unnerving, so fucking terrifying about that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Because the scene goes on. I mean, it's not the longest one that we'll get of this, but it's the first one. So it's very memorable. Mm -hmm. She is so far away when we first spot her. And then we get to watch her walk across the entire quad until Jay is finally like, oh, fuck, I can't take this. I got to get out of (laughs) here. And this bothers me, actually. There's another movie I saw recently where this happened, but where like she's in she's in a a, a college and why is this fucking professor being like miss sit down or like i'm like no ma'am we're paying you we i can get up and walk out any fucking time i want (laughs) look i wrote my notes um this is college there's absolutely no reason the teacher should scoff at her for walking out of class (laughs) (laughs) this this is a college (laughs) ma'am this is a college I think except for the fact that the door is right near where she's speaking. So she's like, uh, I'm trying to read you bitches T.S. Eliot here. Can you please pay attention? This poem is very significant. Because <laughs> P.S. the poem is about getting old and dying. Oh, well, there, there you go. Oh, well, there you go. See, I don't listen to that shit. <laughs> I mean, neither do I. I try I to. Look to. It up, yeah, I, I mean, I, y'all can do the research. I'm just here to talk about like my existential dread and depression. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In that case, I'll just give a shout out to Henri de Corinth, who did a blog post on Mitchell's It Follows Literary Illusions, where he talks about this as well as Dostoevsky's The Idiot. So that's where I'm pulling that from. <laughs> that that moment, too, where Jay runs out into the hall and when she realizes, like, she's like, hello. And then the two girls, the, the yeah. woman's in front and the two girls are like, yeah, mm-hmm. I just I love that, like realization where like they can't see the woman and you're like oh yeah this is yes because that's telling us the rules without telling us the rules i wonder if there was ever a temptation to have it walk like with its arms out like a zombie or like reach for her at some point oh god i I mean it grabs her 
Oh yeah, it does. It does. But I mean, I mean, you know, like when it's sh- shambling down the hall and it's like, Ooh. God, I don't know. I hope no one. Yeah, that would be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> would it be scary? Probably not. No. Um, and yeah, the good use of score in this scene as well. And then, I mean, really, it's after this, we pretty much go straight, not straight to, but it's the kitchen set piece. Well, it's pretty much like from this point on, like, it's like nonstop, like, yeah. paranoia, I feel mm-hmm. like. I don't know quite how to feel about this kitchen scene, because I don't find this iteration of it as frightening but maybe it's just because i don't understand like the half-naked cheerleader with urine like i find it more unusual than frightening well she's wearing um vampire fangs so i took it to mean that it was like a halloween costume right i mean i've definitely seen people read this as oh these are all the victims of people that it has killed so it can then take their form Mm -hmm. so however it killed them whether it was like elderly people and that's why they're in hospital gowns or whatever i mean that would mean that it killed her dad then no no no, no because it no because it can also take the form of someone you love so it can, it can be uh, someone you love or yeah, it, right. or it can also assume a so, so basically once it has you it can take the form of you or anyone that like i guess you know specifically mm-hmm. because i was yeah, also with the old lady in the uh, school i mean again if we want to talk about who are these people i mean we all know that like really high std rates come out of uh old folks homes so oh, i'm also oh, just God. thinking about like an old folks home being beset by this thing <laughs> oh my god it follows the prequel <laughs> yeah they're like well if things are gonna end soon might as well have some fun and i totally get that i understand that sentiment <laughs> there's just been this rash of deaths at the old folks home we have no idea what's <laughs> happening oh my god oh my god it's honestly not even the reveal of this woman in the uh, in the kitchen. What I actually love is when Paul goes to check when the window breaks. And we just get, not a really long shot, but we have a shot of like the corner where he goes. Mm-hmm. Watching it, I am just waiting, waiting for this thing to come through the corner. And it doesn't, which I like. But yeah. again, it's that dread and anticipation of something that you that you know is at least, if not coming now, it's coming at some point. You know mm-hmm. what? Like, I, I'm never one to be like, well, for a movie like this, and I love this movie, this is a five-star movie for me, but like, yeah. I, I've never been one to be like, what would have been cool is if blah, 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 that would have made it even better. I almost wonder how that would have played it if like, it came out as Paul and didn't say anything oh. first, and then, and then Paul came out. I think that would have mm-hmm. been really creepy. Oh my God, like a doppelganger situation. Yeah. That would have been really cool. Because yeah. we do get it with Yara later mm-hmm. on, and I do find that that scene is very effective because we already know it's coming and they don't. And I mm-hmm. kind of love that inversion because so much of this film is us watching with Jay yeah. looking constantly. Yeah. And this one, it's like, oh no, it's hiding in plain sight. And the only reason we know is because Yara's in the water. Yara just kind of battles by. Which is cool because you don't really know it until that happens and you're like, oh fuck. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I guess that probably would have diluted that moment a little bit, the effectiveness of that moment on the beach later. But maybe what is he watching to i wondered if the vampire thing had a connection to the movie but i think it's like a kaiju movie or something i don't know it looks like yeah. a godzilla movie i do think it's that i think this is another attempt to kind of throw off the temporal setting because I, I know a yeah. lot of people pointed out you know oh what season is it we can't tell because sometimes she's in the pool in one scene and then they're wearing fall or winter jackets right. in another and uh, some people said like all the tvs are either 70s or 50s but like this is a movie from the 50s because it's clearly uh, and it's also a tv that's stacked on another tv that's broken. yeah yeah <laughs> and of course it's really interesting of course people talk about that damn clamshell constantly because like well that yes. means it's the present day <laughs> or the future this is black mirror yeah yeah <laughs> 
not a lot of slow-mo in this movie, but I do mm-hmm. love this slow motion when she sees it. Yeah. Um, and similarly, when we get the tall man upstairs and she hightails it out that fucking window. <laughs> oh, I love it. She doesn't even wait to explain. She's like, peace out, y'all. I'm out the window. <laughs> I love that. She also, um, there's also slow-mo whenever she uh, goes to Greg's, whenever he's about to die. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess right. when he is dying. Yeah, when she goes through the window. I find that scene very effective because we've already been cued by it taking the visage of Yara. So I love when we see Greg just kind of slowly walking and we're like, oh, fuck, he's all in white. Oh, shit. This is bad. Doesn't he, like, break the window or something? Yeah, and he, he, like, crawls in and there's... Because he tries to open the door a couple times. He, like, Mm -hmm. shakes it. And again, like, my first viewing, I don't think I realized that was Greg. Like, it took the form of Greg. Mm. But yeah, there's something about the way it um, almost limply, like, slides in through the broken window that's just very creepy. Yeah. I think I... I don't remember where I talked about this but like i have i'm like a sucker for like and i know you did last summer too whenever um helen sees barry like sees that barry's about to be attacked before mm-hmm. he knows and he and she's screaming and no one else can see like mm-hmm. this felt like that moment to me where she's like running and she's like trying to save him because she sees what he doesn't see yet yeah. and yeah. i i think that, i always think that's so effective that's like one of my favorite little devices in a horror movie yeah this scene feels very reminiscent to me of the original Nightmare on Elm Street where Nancy mm-hmm. entrusts yes. in Glenn and he falls asleep and then he ends up being murdered where it's like same kind of deal to the point where I think Trace I even sent you a message and I was like <laughs> blah 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 Glenn's death and you were like don't you mean no, Greg? I was like push my glasses up actually the character's name is Greg Joe. Um, actually <laughs> we've established the rules of this movie. I bet he was so pleased with himself too, correcting me. No, 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 no. I, I was actually very much like, oh, like, you know, it's it's Greg, like, just whatever. But he's like, oh, no, I was thinking of Nightmare on Elm Street. And I was like, oh, that actually, like, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> oh, boy. But this movie is, there's a lot of homage stuff in it, too. And none of it feels cheap. It feels very, no. like, V-classy. I think, like, he, he does a really great job of, like, getting those references in. And it's not, like, how a lot of references you know are communicated in a lot of movies these days mm-hmm. so but, but between this between the kitchen slash tall man and greg's death we do have like what's essentially an investigation right like we yeah. have them going to hughes jeff's house i love the reveal of the inside of the dilapidated house specifically as they see like you know the bottles and stuff hanging on the window mm-hmm. and you're like oh we know what he was using all this for and it's just oh imagine living that existence oh yeah even like the pills, which I'm imagining are the equivalent of, again, Nightmare on Elm Street, like, oh, these are probably no dose uppers so that he doesn't fall asleep. <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, man, just go get some. Well, no, I'm not. I'm gonna get some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know where that was going. <laughs> not every episode, Trace. <laughs> I guess, like, yeah, we talked a little bit about this. This probably doesn't fit, but I, I wanted to say this earlier, but like, there's like a kind of a classism. Mm-hmm. perspective here and it's like this assumption like suburbia is safe and, and nothing mm-hmm. can get you here and which is even funny because it's kind of like you know when you see your neighbor across the street at the beginning it's greg's mom she's like oh that they're such a mess like you know yes. they're just like the rush to judgment yeah and it's just like that whole it, i thought it was really like it's like this insidious nature in suburbia where it's the danger is like more underhanded and sneaky and mm-hmm. so i think that that this movie does a really good job of like creating that dichotomy and and like and addressing it in a way that's not like necessarily hitting you over the head with it when she finally says that later but it's something that that i think is really effective because they talk about jeff like oh he rented a house like in the city 
and yes. he was using his fake name and it's like oh he's a city boy he's bad like yeah. the city's mm-hmm. bad oh um by the way joe careful who you sleep with did you recognize the actor playing jeff uh mr jake weary uh i know from your fact sheet that we have seen him before in the same oh. way that we've actually seen greg but uh <laughs> i can't recall him zombievers yes he is in zombievers oh my god <laughs> <laughs> where is the actor that plays greg daniel zavato he is uh he is money in don't breathe he was also in um what was that show revenge he was in revenge yeah. for a little bit yeah mm-hmm. revenge yeah he was also in the terrible penny dreadful spinoff uh, oh, oh i never watched it because watch i heard that. it was so bad yeah it's really bad <laughs> bless you for doing the work for us joe <laughs> What about the lake set piece? Uh, I mean, we talked about it a little bit with this doppelganger, but we also, this is when we kind of get the first demonstration outside of the opening scene of this creature's like physical powers. And it's like, it's not just like people can't see it, but it, mm-hmm. you can touch it. It can touch you even if you can't see it, which I, I think it's really cool, but I do wonder if that's maybe kind of a thing where people watch like whenever Paul gets like kicked away, mm-hmm. if people are kind of like, that's kind of dumb. Yeah, I think because the movie avoided any kind of effects that looked not real so to speak up to this point and then it's right. using you know obviously like the invisible monster grabbing your hair and a chair breaks on the air and you know, i think that that's for me I'm, I'm thinking about when i first watched it i think that was a moment when i was thinking like okay i don't know that this is like the same vibe i thought that it was Rewatching yeah. it now i'm like totally fine with it i actually love like the progression and how how much more they interact with mm-hmm. it but yeah i could see people being weird about it yeah, it feels like the next logical step, right? Like you you can't just repeat the same kind of attack sequences over and over again. So we are learning new knowledge about how it works. And this is a scary scene because you realize OJ is under danger and she's surrounded by friends who can't help her. And then I also like the reveal where she actually gets the gun and she shoots it. And we think, mm-hmm. oh, okay, so it does have a kind of corporeal form that can be damaged. And then it just gets right back up. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think... If you're paying attention and if you've seen the film before, this is again cueing us that their pool plan at the end will not work because you can't get rid of it this way. Yeah. And and that's to me where it is death. It is a virus that can't be cured. I mean, we're talking Mm -hmm. about HIV or AIDS. Of course, obviously now there's very big milestones that have come in that that area. Right. But I think a lot of those readings work in that aspect. Oh my god. It's like the the It Follows remake is like, oh, I just went on prep. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) It is two minutes long. (laughs) (laughs) It's a short now. Thanks for coming out, everybody. That whole, the whole beach scene I love, and and like you said, like, it's really suspenseful because of the way it's framed, too. Like, the only one of them who can see it has her back turned to where it could walk up to you, you know, and Mm -hmm. surprise you, which I thought was... And it also, like, kind of uh, hints again, I think, at at Jay's, like, affinity for nature and the outdoors, because she seems more relaxed. Yeah, she's so at peace. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, and if she was smart, she would have turned her back to the lake. (laughs) Yeah, put your back to the water, sweetie. (laughs) Although it doesn't help Annie in the long run. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I do also like that Greg, I mean, like, we've already talked about his death, but I Mm. love the fact that he saw all of this and still didn't believe that it was real. Yeah. Well, and this is the first time I caught where she says that her and Greg, that she and Greg had sex in high school before. Yes, mm-hmm. I actually Which, rewound it so I, because I was like, did she say that? Well, because it's a little weird, right? Because I think every other time before this, I've been like, okay, he just wants to fuck her for right. the first time, and now we're like, okay, well, no, it's not. He just wants to fuck her again, even though he's mm-hmm. already like had sex with her. So I, 
it, it recontextualized that a little bit for me, but it doesn't make him a better person. <laughs> no, he still sucks. <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Paul is worse in my books than Greg. Greg just feels like a bit of an asshole, whereas I, as I've said before, I feel like Paul is a little bit more predatory. But I think Paul has room to learn in his life <laughs> and right. Greg is like accepted the fact that he's a piece of shit maybe right this is very frustrating too like not to not to like harken back to the X-Files episode where Trace was wasted but <laughs> the, <laughs> listen to it if you haven't listened to that one. Oh my gosh but um major scully vibes because it's like this woman sees this crazy shit happen right. in this series for seasons and seasons before she starts to be like well you might be on to something it's like what do you think that thing was like how do you think that thing elevated or it's yeah. just so funny because he's like, I don't know what I saw. I choose not to believe. Yep. Yeah, well, the chair just exploded in the air. Sure. And, and we kind of have a modern version of the X-Files, at least with the Scully character, in Evil right now, don't we? Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. Yes. Uh, shout out to Evil. So much so. Watch uh, Evil. Evil so much. So good. <laughs> so after Greg dies, there's a throwaway scene that I am perpetually fascinated about. And it's when she goes to the beach and she presumably goes and fucks three guys on a raft or yes. a boat. Oh, I didn't even put that together at yeah. all. Yeah, yeah. It's almost more terrifying when you realize how bad they are at it. Like, clearly she did what Jeff Hugh did to her, where she just, like, goes out, fucks one of them, and is like, yeah. cool, I bought myself a little bit of time, because almost immediately that's when we see it appear on the roof so it's like oh that bought her no time at all like she literally just got i know it's like you did this thing that you thought was going to help and it didn't help which is why i i love this part and i'm glad that you brought it up because again this really for me like goes back to that like a sense of dread that i felt during the pandemic and kind of this helplessness like whenever you feel like something is so inevitable and it's so you know like this awful end is inevitable so it's kind of like what does it matter what i do I'll just try to do whatever I can yeah. to buy me some time to feel better, whatever. And obviously she doesn't look like she's doing it to have fun. A lot mm -hmm. of people who are in these positions, I even think of just like, you know, addiction. Like it's, it's a form of escapism. It's a form of trying to, you know, buy yourself some time before the inevitable, you know, end of everything. And that's what it feels like to me. It's kind of like a, almost like spiraling a bit and grasping at straws, doing whatever you can. It's kind of like dehumanizing, like you dehumanize yourself, but you do it because it's like, what else can you do? Like when when I watched that scene this time, I was like much more affected by it because the yeah. way she looks when she's driving afterwards with her, oh, her hair is all wet. Distraught. And, yeah. yeah. And it's just like, God, that's ugh, girl. I've been there. I didn't even I, I've never put that together. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Because the way she looks this is terrible reminds me of how jennifer connelly looks in requiem for a dream after oh. the gangbang thing yeah. where you're just like i did the thing i don't want to talk about it i can't even process it it's very much a coping mechanism i did what i had to do to get myself out of that to a safe space it's like oh i like i know that this is killing me i know this drug is killing me but i did the bit i needed to do just mm -hmm. so i could get through today and it's yes. like and you're still miserable and it's like Oh, when I I was like, I feel that like that's so that's so real, and I I'm glad that that that's in there. And there's even some kind of sexual like gender politics in play too, because we have Jeff Hugh earlier say, you know, oh, it's going to be You're easy for her because she's a girl, yeah. and I'm like, well, just get on grinder, dude. I'm like, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
they're like, well, have I got news for you. You'll get snatched up real quick, I promise. <laughs> Hot piece of tail like you? Oh, Jeff Hugh, you'd be great on the circuit, yeah. <laughs> Gay for pay? Not anymore. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay, so the It Follows sequel takes place on a porn set. <laughs> it, it's 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 the bait bus that's what it is oh, oh my god is that god. even around still i don't is it uh, listeners let us not. know if the bait bus is around <laughs> all the straight audiences are so confused right i know now. it's like love do yourselves. not google it if you don't want to know no more bait bus yeah <laughs> let's normalize wanting people who want us back oh god oh please they're all gay for pay so <laughs> okay so the pool let's talk about the pool everybody's least favorite scene in this movie okay here's the thing i like this scene and not oh, yeah. i don't find it particularly suspenseful but yeah a lot of people were like this is a really stupid idea and someone has brought mm-hmm. this up to mitchell and he's like yeah they're kids like <laughs> yeah they're stupid teenagers they have no information but they think sure let's electrocute it why not and jay i mean she is 19 so i mean she's the oldest of the lot i guess but still mm-hmm. like apologies for any teenagers or 19 year old listeners we have out there but were any of y'all really smart when y'all were 19 i was gonna say i was an idiot when i was like 29 so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> definitely not when i was 19 <laughs> Yeah, no, the the plan, it makes sense in theory. They just have no reason to back it up. But the first time you watch this, it is very confronting because you think that you've missed something because we are so conditioned to be like, oh, here's how you defeat the monster. We found its Achilles heel. All we have to do is put it in water. All we have to do is electrocute it. And this mm-hmm. film doesn't give you that. So when they do say, oh, we've got this plan, you think, wait, did I miss something? I'm confused. And the film is just like, no, they're just dumb down like, kids. No, we know as much as they do. Well, and I do <laughs> yeah. remember watching this in theaters the first time. I was kind of like, I don't think I realized that this was the climax of the film. There is that too. Yeah. When it ended, I was very much like, oh, that's it. Like, th- that is the end of the movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that was the scene actually that I had the most, that I had the most problems with when I walked out. And now I love it. And because, and I do actually think it's suspenseful. Yeah. When it starts throwing like the oh, yeah, like, oh, yeah, TVs yeah. and like a, a typewriter at her mm-hmm. and like all this random ass shit. But I didn't realize how many times she gets hit in the head. Yeah. Yeah. It hits yeah. her. And then with the gun, with the gunshot, like when it finally gets her underwater. And that was, I mean, I, I thought that that was uh, really suspenseful. There's also a line that you you, you might miss it because it's, it's really quick, but where I guess after the second or third electrical appliance is thrown in there, <laughs> I think either, either her sister Kelly. Or Yara says, oh, it didn't electrocute her. That's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, There's yeah. a little bit of comedy. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, speaking of comedy, there is a scene earlier that I really liked that we forgot to talk about. But it's real quick, that Jeff Hugh moment when whenever he's... Number one, they go to like his his mom answers the door and he's like, oh, yeah, he's here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, just let me get him. Come in. And then um, <laughs> and he's explaining it. But then they're... Where are they? They're like... They're like in a, like a soccer field. Almost. Yeah, it's like a park or something. But then... Uh, he starts freaking out. It's like, do you see that girl? And they're like, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing, too, because Greg, Greg shits on him for that, too. He's like, you're making it all up, man. This actor looks terrified. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> he looks like strung out. Like, he, yeah, yeah, he, doesn't he has it. not slept in a year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, yeah, the, the um, pool. I had the most problems with it at first. I really enjoyed it this time. It was totally enough for me for... Mitchell to be like, yeah, they're dumb kids. Like that's a dumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a dumb plan. They made assumptions about it, and I think it's way it, way better than doing something like Night of the Demons 
the remake where it's like there is an expository scene towards the end where a character like <laughs> no. makes a connection between rust and okay. demons wait 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 it is y'all wait. y'all need to watch that if you've never okay, seen wait, it okay wait wait but, but that movie is intentionally a horror comedy like, okay. You, okay no 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 you say that I don't think that that part is intended to be no funny. okay I, the, the line of dialogue is it is delivered so seriously the, 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 by Monica Keenan nonetheless but, no, but there's a lot basically like there's something about how like she puts this up in her head. She's like, demons are born from natural elements. Rust corrupts metal, which is a natural element, so rust will hurt demons. Like, she just, she did this monologue. <laughs> it is so hilarious. And also, if we get it into a pool, we can electrocute it. Yeah, it's like, what? Like, okay. Like, but you know what? Like, I'd rather hear, I'd rather see them, like, do something dumb and not hear them explain that. And I'm glad they just did it. Like, I don't know how I would have felt if he's like, or we had to hear his spiel mm-hmm. about why he thought that it could be electrocuted and that would save them. Oh, yeah. See, that's why it's such a bad plan because Paul made it. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, but I, I remember reading, I, I think even on the Bloody Disgusting review or whenever like, people mention it on Bloody Disgusting, they're like, oh, God, like, I, I just I hated that movie so much because the, the kids were so dumb in that pool. And I'm just like, well, what would you have done? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. what, what, what are you going to do to stop this thing? Because I can guarantee you it's going to fail. Like, uh, Trace, I, I would have gotten on a plane. I would have Ugh. flown to Europe. It would have taken forever for it to walk Wear a across condom. the ocean floor. I yeah. literally heard that. They would go live on the ocean floor? Well, like, go, go to Europe because it has to walk across the ocean to get to you. Yes. Oh, my God. And then when it catches you, move back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, oh, I'm just going to become a jet setter, apparently. But okay, but here's the thing, though. Imagine waiting in the airport right. while you're taxiing, or like while you're waiting to taxi, you know? Oh, my God. Can you imagine it on a plane? I mean, like, just imagine, though, like, moving to Europe and just waiting, yeah. never yeah. knowing when is exactly. this fucking thing going to get. Like, who would ever be able to chill? Like, yeah. That sounds terrible. No, exactly. You can't. That's why this is scary, y'all. <laughs> yeah, it's a death sentence. It's just that you never know when it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that, that is when we come into this quote from the idiot that, that Yara almost closes the film out. Because it goes from this to, I think, the last scene. I totally thought that you were just like, and then we come to a quote from this idiot. And I'm like, wait, who are we talking about? <laughs> from, the, from the idiot. The, right. the, the idiot. Not the titular idiot. There's no titular idiot. But yeah, it is. But here I should imagine the most terrible part of the whole punishment is not the bodily pain at all, but the certain knowledge that in an hour, then in 10 minutes, then in half a minute, then now, this very instant, your soul must quit your body and that you will no longer be a man. And that this is certain. Certain. That's the point, the certainty of it. And that's the thing, right? Mm-hmm. You are going to die, be it from yes. natural causes or whatever, or from this it. Yep. I mean, and again, I think that that's what makes the movie terrifying. There's even um, the bit that she reads earlier that's something about, like, if the house is falling down around you, uh, there's probably, like, an inclination just to, like, kind of let it happen at a point. It's, I, it's, I'm paraphrasing that, but it's yep. earlier in the film. It's just, like, very appropriate, the bits of literature that are read out there. Because it's like, yep, this is scary. And guess what? It's scary even if this thing doesn't exist because we're all going to die and you'll mm-hmm. never know when. And it's like, oh, existential thanks, crisis. Yeah, thanks for ending on that great note. And now <laughs> let's go home. Yeah. Have a, have a great night, everybody. Don't forget to, you know, like, fuck your wife and have a great life. <laughs> Actually, no, I'm pretty sure no one wanted to fuck after watching this. Yeah. Although I will say that I find, oh my god, such a dumb comment. I do find Jay's uh, antique underwear set. I think it's very fetching. I think she looks great in it. I honestly didn't pay attention to that. I mean, like, like, like talking about what she's wearing in like the uh, she's in wearing? the wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's like a 1950s kind of lingerie, but it's like pink and frilly. I think Michael yeah, Monroe I, looks really good in it. Yeah, 
I would agree with that. I mean, also, it, that's kind of that image of her strapped in the wheelchair is, I'm going to say the word iconic. Iconic. You know? but, <laughs> but it's just because, like, that is the image that was with every review for this it film. Is like, yeah. like, everything. I remember speculating about that. Like, just what does this image mean? What is going on here? Why is she tied to, you know, because I even thought it was like a snuff film or something. Mm. Well, because it looks like she's sitting there, like, strapped to a chair to watch a movie, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so, okay. I mean, we have, you know, Paul driving through, passing for prostitutes, so we can believe that he fucked, you know, one of them. Which, again, class disparity, if we're going to say, like, sure, I'll just give it to a prostitute because their lives don't matter. Sorry, sex worker. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that oh, that's yeah. maybe something to be to be said about that, too. And and again, that com- I think that's more commentary. See, in my mindset was, oh, well, it's it's guaranteed to be passed more quickly because of she's a sex worker, meaning sure. that, okay, she's going she's gonna to have sex with someone soon, so mm-hmm. it's better to do it that way. It but, can be both. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've always read it as both, but I'm just like, oh, a white teen boy from the suburbs would say, sure, I'll just give it to a sex worker because. Right, right, right. Especially a stupid one who makes the kind of plan he did. Right. <laughs> now... I, I have a question for both of you. So with the final sh- scene... Uh, so much debate. Well, not even so. So yes, we, we have uh, Jay and Paul walking down the sidewalk holding hands. At first, we don't see a figure behind them. And then the second to last shot, we see a man walking in the distance behind them. Mm-hmm. What do you think, if, if anything, is there significance to not cutting to black on the figure, like that shot? We instead actually cut to black on the actual last shot, which is behind them as they hold hands because i feel like if it ended if it cut to black on the figure behind them that would be a more like a it's a hint it's it, or like a pessimistic closing for this i film. think it's pessimistic either way this is the position they put themselves in yeah they're gonna have to be together if they want to survive mm-hmm. and it kind of is what it is and it's like we're doing this together and i've always yeah, we're in it together. that way yeah like just kind of like okay that thing's behind us and we're together and we're gonna live life i guess until mm-hmm. we don't anymore it also, to me, feels like if we read the opening as a snapshot for how to read the whole film, the ending, if we're thinking of it through your lens, Ari, it's kind of like, oh, okay, this is what life looks like. You find a partner, you say we're going to go through it, even though the specter of death is chasing us for the rest of our lives. Mm, mm-hmm. I like that. That's very eloquent, Joe. Yeah. He's the eloquent one. <laughs> <laughs> no. I just have to say it like five times because I'll get it right the first four. It's fine. That's what editing's for. There we go. Yeah. So that part, it cutting with them, holding hands. I also like the idea that it's like, this thing is behind them both. And they're in this together. And so, I mean, I guess like ostensibly, like neither of them can see it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a it's kind of like a double edged sword. It's like we're in this together, but, and if we're facing the same way, we may never see it. So maybe we'll go together. And it's kind of, I don't know. It's a little Thelma and Louise, a little because if it's just them by themselves, they'll. I mean, I guess they could notice if someone's walking towards them and not talking and you know looking dead behind the eyes or whatever. Mm. But I, I guess like it's this idea of like yes, together they're safer, and also like if it's just them two, like are they well, safer? But- but that's I mean that's what I mean though right because if we, if we cut to black on the image of like us facing them seeing the thing behind them that is like okay we're ending the movie with these three characters again whether this whether this is it or not we instead choose the movie of turning away from it just like the characters do ending with their hands held together we just like the characters are choosing to walk away to mm-hmm. turn away from it and just take life on that, that's yeah. what I mean. like, like that to me is it's not a happy ending because again we're like well they're gonna die 
but it's a bit more of an optimistic like well might as well make the best of it <laughs> mm -hmm. but also we're all so cynical because there are people who say no we actually got rid of the monster the evil is dead we killed it in the pool that's why we saw all of the blood <laughs> fill the pool like this is just no. some person who's behind them no, I don't. I, I don't to which I'm also like, no, it's not. Obviously, it's I not. like. I mean, I like the idea that like that we don't know, and I I don't know if he's ever answered that question or whatever. I'd imagine like he probably maybe wanted the the ending oh, to have sure. that positive tinge to it, and then there it to be open as well. But mm -hmm. I, yeah, like let it still be it because that's the kind of anxiety that will pop up sometimes. And mm -hmm. yeah, life. this isn't a movie that has a happy ending. Like yeah, exactly. it's just not that movie. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and that's why, like, you know, they've there have been talks about a sequel. I think Boo. No. I, yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, like, would I watch a sequel to this? Yes. Sure. But do I, I think they were like, oh, we're going to switch it. It's going to be called Follow It. Yeah, we're going to trace it back to the origin. But... but it's, yeah, it's definitely a thing where I'm like, I don't know if I want answers because I don't know what answer is going to satisfy me, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I like the ones that I've created in my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the the further and further away we get from the release of this film, the less satisfying any sequel would be. Yeah. yeah but I started in 1666 with a woman named Sarah Fear. And... <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Oh, well, that is It Follows, everybody. Uh, gentlemen, mm -hmm. any uh, lasting thoughts on the film? Anything you want to get out before we sign off? I just think this is a really good movie if... You're willing to, I mean, I feel like I say this all the time, if you're willing to take it for what it's doing, you don't have to be in the right mood, but now, <laughs> you know what, I'll just, I'll leave it at that. It's, it's a really a good, good movie. movie. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a wonderful movie, and I I feel like it's become like a very, like, it's weird to say cathartic because it's it doesn't really have like any kind of like hopeful payoff, but it, catharsis in that, like, it is so refreshing to look at it now with the eyes that I'm looking through. Mm-hmm. And feeling yourself seen in something like this and i don't know it's just this movie this is this is so like off tone from from our discussion but it was really helpful for me to watch this during the last you know year and a half yeah um and to kind of get these emotions out in a different way or to see them reflected in a different way mm -hmm. um again whether that was mitchell's intention or not but that's the beautiful part of art is you know it's subjective and we all bring our own truths to it and so i i commend him for making you know me whatever he doesn't care if i commend him or not but, <laughs> but like you know i always like really appreciate movies that like leave so much room for interpretation that the seventh or eighth time i watch it i can connect with it even more than i did the first couple of times like yeah. in a really personal way and that's i think again i picked this because i felt like i really resonated with it and it felt good for me to like engage with this movie again after a few years of not having watched it so and then having watched it like four or five times this year so <laughs> yeah so i yeah so i appreciate y'all having me because i I do think that this was something that i would have been really bummed if i wouldn't have gotten to talk about this with y'all i love that you that you're like there's no catharsis in this film but you get catharsis from it yeah. because you feel seen there's something so powerful about that that's something that, you know I, I hope that listeners that have, that are listening <laughs> listeners that are listening <laughs> If you watch this movie and you didn't like it on a first viewing or even a second viewing, I, I that's one thing I always hope that people can get out of our conversations, right? That they can look at a film from a different perspective, hopefully maybe find a new appreciation for it, even if it's mm -hmm. not like a, oh, I'm changing it from a two-star to a four-star film. Yeah. 
but just something. And I, I do encourage you that if you've seen it, you didn't love it, and you've listened to this, go back and rewatch it. Because I, I do think that, much like a lot of these this stream of films, The Witch, Hereditary, uh, It Comes at Night especially is the one that people hated. Right. I think all of those films really, really, really reward repeat viewings. But I, I understand that it, you have to kind of muster up some will. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> to do it and be in the right headspace. I think it's just being willing to like bring a new set of eyes to it and kind of like wipe clean, you know, any preconceived opinions you had and try to just experience it differently. I think that that's what makes movies like this more rewarding. And especially right. true if you haven't seen this since 2015. Absolutely. Like, oh, let, yeah. Yeah, yeah. let the six years of difference, like, yeah, like come into this with fresh eyes now because I yeah. promise you it'll pay off. And I will say this pairs very, very well. If you haven't seen that also um, with She Dies Tomorrow, you should watch that movie too. Yeah, and folks, if you haven't checked out She Dies Tomorrow, we actually did a guest spot on Ghouls Next Door about it, so you can actually hear our thoughts on the film on their podcast. And I will say, though, that that is definitely much more of an art house film than this one is, so I mean... It, ah, they're both art house. No, I know, I know but I can, see <laughs> pe- I, I can see people that were impatient with It Follows being a lot more impatient with She Dies Tomorrow. How interesting. I find that movie very trippy and kind of quirky. I think it's. I think um, it follows. Definitely has more traditional horror imagery. Uh, okay, horror yes. fan would be more willing to walk into it. And she dies tomorrow. Like again, I think it's like the way it's sold in its trailer and everything. It's like yeah, that's what the movie is. It's like this weird kind of like minimalist. Yeah. To me, she dies tomorrow is like a very sad black comedy. True. Okay. Yeah. 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 I can see it. <laughs> anyway, uh, but yeah, I, I love it. Follows. I have nothing else to add to it except it's a five star film for me as well. I think. I think when I saw it in theater, it was like a three and a half, and it's like gone up every time I watch it. So uh, I love that. I love this movie, and it's great. Before we announce what we're covering next week, Ari, let everyone know where they can find you on yeah. social media. You can find me at the t h e Ari Drew. Um, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I think those are the ones that the kids use actually the kids probably don't use any of those i'm not on tiktok so. <laughs> uh, but uh, re- recently i've been doing a little bit of guest writing still i've gotten back into the game ah, just a little bit and i have a couple of pieces that have gone up recently on neon splatter if you want to check those out one is about it's for kai july i wrote about colossal a little bit and then prior to that i wrote about the black coat Sauter, which is another um slow burn one of my favorite movies actually that came out around this time, this, yeah. this time and mm-hmm. it's i guess you could call it elevated horror as well so if you mm-hmm. want to ever chat about that feel free to hit me up and we'll cover it here one day <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'll come back and talk about that <laughs> um well if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us on twitter and instagram at horror queers and join our facebook horror queers group also find us on letterbox to keep track of all the films we've covered we've got special lists for i mean every kind of category so those are fun uh also go to our youtube channel to watch our video recordings of micro queers uh because well you can see us and that's always fun it's true we change our <laughs> shirts we swear we didn't record them all at once you can see us do air quotes instead of like hearing our air quote inflections when we speak <laughs> very important yes And if you want even more Horror Queers content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are in September, so go subscribe to hear our recommendations on weird horror films, plus episodes on Nia DaCosta's new Candyman film, James Wan's new film Malignant, Netflix's new series Brand New Cherry Flavor, and an audio commentary on really good vampire movie, 30 Days of Night. Now, Joe. Yes. What are we checking out next week? Well, I don't know if anyone is going to confuse next week's film for Elevated Horror. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're going to dig into some early 90s horror trace. We're going to talk about Freddy's Dead. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> yeah. 
I know one person that loves this movie, and it's actually John Squires, uh, the bloody disgusting editor in chief. Oh, and... I know, I know another couple people. Okay, <laughs> I, I, uh, <laughs> I don't like this movie very much, but it is. It's not. Well, I was gonna say it's not boring, but sometimes it is. Uh, mm. <laughs> so yeah, everyone, come with us to uh, the Twin Peaks inspired and female directed. Yeah, Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare next week. Yeah, have some drinks beforehand. There we go. <laughs> And until then, uh, we can cross out It Follows. Yes, indeed. And cross out Horror Queers. Okay, so that donkey joke. Here's the punchline. Mm-hmm.